0: Hey there, what you're about to listen to is actually two podcast interviews I did with Dave Holland from the Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield YouTube channel. Dave is an ex-US Marine, and he's been performing tours on Guadalcanal for a few years, and he's found many of the sites where men earned medals of honor. Truly an incredible guy. Now, if you've been following this series from the very beginning, you would remember one of the earlier episodes was an interview with Dave about the Battle of Alligator Creek in the early part of the Guadalcanal Campaign. I had to add that to the first half of this podcast, just to ensure it was coherent. Because this podcast covers basically the entire Guadalcanal Campaign, as told to us by Dave Holland, off the top of his head mind you. I was literally floored at his knowledge and storytelling ability. He knows the dates, actions, and certainly the territory, as he has spent some years walking upon it. Please check out his channel if you've not already done so to give him some love. But without further ado, this is the Guadalcanal Campaign with Dave Holland. Hey, welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So we'll give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, you can find a podcast I did with Dave Holland, where we covered many of the medals of honor earned during the Guadalcanal campaign. Check it out. It would mean a lot to me. And just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash Channel. And this month's exclusive podcast over there is part two of my series about General Ishiwara Kanji, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident and the author of The Final War Theory. Check it out. It would mean a lot to me. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pacific War podcast, week by week in association with Kings and Generals. I am your dutiful host, Craig Watson, and I'm joined here today by Dave Holland. How are you, Dave?
1: Uh, not bad, Craig. Thanks for um, having me on. It's a, it's a privilege.
0: And uh, today's subject is going to be about the Guadalcanal campaign, something that was of deep interest to me, especially uh, from actually the Japanese point of view, in which Guadalcanal was kind of a hellish island where they were sent with almost no food or rations and they suffered tremendously in the jungles to terrible diseases as well as being uh, well killed by the marines so it's quite a uh, quite uh, a horror show for both sides but i i think the japanese got it even worse than most and uh if you want why don't you uh, tell us a little bit
1: about yourself and uh yeah all right thanks yeah i'm, uh, I'm... Originally from the United States, you can probably tell from my accent, even though it's a it's a hybrid accent between um, a little bit Australian, the, the, yeah, the Southern United States and Australian. Um, but um, originally, like I said, from the states, uh, I did eight years in U.S. Marines and um, live permanently in Australia. You know, courtesy of an Australian wife. Um, so the reason I became interested in Guadalcanal, um, I work for the Australian government, and obviously. Being a, a military nut, ever since I was about six years old or probably earlier than that, that's my, my only, my, I guess my earliest memory. And uh, a former US Marine, and then working for the Australian government, uh, I got a chance to visit Guadalcanal for short periods. And that was started in 2009. And you know, you can imagine the excitement of, of going to Guadalcanal. And, um, I said it before, it's been like an Australian soldier uh, being posted you know, two years or three years to Gallipoli, you know, or or a Canadian soldier being posted years to Vimy Ridge in in the Western Front, who's have a a strong military uh, interest of history, you know, you're in your element. So all my available time, you can imagine, I spent walking the battlefields and what I wanted to do was to delve deep into some of the, um, obviously the major battles, but also to go off to the the side uh, battles or skirmishes. It was Guadalcanal with a six month campaign and it, you know, it was, it wasn't one battle, it was a campaign, it was multi battles and multi skirmishes. So I wanted to delve deep in that. And I read all the, the popular history and the, and the uh, detailed history of Guaycanal, Canal, but I wanted to put boots on the ground, walk the ground, which I think is very important and find out exactly, did it happen this way? Did it occur this way? You know, and you know, with my military background, I could, I could look at it from that point of view also. And, and then I started in 2009, so I went there. And I did a four-month trip, and that, that allowed me to, to get, you know, to start to scratch the surface a bit, just to get excited. And then from 2011 and 12, I did short trips. And during that time there, I gave a lot of battlefield uh, study programs to the Australian Army in, um, Australia and uh, New Zealand, and, and some of the American Marines was over there at times, battlefield study programs. I did a lot of battlefield tours, battlefield walks. But then in 2018, I've got, had the opportunity to be posted for two years in Guadalcanal. So, I could really delve deep and I did some, you know, I, I went so deep I lost my breath, sort of speaking, a lot, a lot of um, a run out of air, sort of speaking, a lot of places. But I'm, I'm tending to go back. Um, currently, uh, Guadalcanal is, is, I guess, banned for tourism, it's banned for any outside visitors due to COVID. And unfortunately, COVID has just kicked over for the first time over in, the, in Solomon Islands. So, oh, you yeah. can imagine. Yeah, that's probably earlier this year it kicked in. So they've been closed almost three, it'll be three years. And this is the 80th, as you know, this is the 80th anniversary to Guadalcanal. So it's going to be a big year for tourism. So hopefully, we probably will make the August. I don't think it's going to be open up by August um, for the anniversary, but hopefully by the end of the year. So to answer your initial, initial question, yes, that's my interest in, in Guadalcanal. And I also run a, a, a YouTube site called Guadalcanal, walking the battlefield. So what basically what I've done, I made that, um, YouTube site for people who've only been to Guadalcanal, maybe for the short one week tour or the, a few days and for the people who never go to Guadalcanal. And then I walk the battlefield. It's like giving a, a battlefield uh, a study, a battlefield tour. And I, you know, I'm doing it and it's off the, the beaten track on a lot of these sites and I keep updating it as we go. And I'd like to walk in the battlefield, but in the meantime, until I can go back, I, I do um, some episodes. And I also have a Facebook site. Same title, Guadalcanal: Walking the Battlefields, which I would update every two or three days, and I do a lot of then and now photos. I try to post materials very original that no one's ever seen before or rarely seen.
0: Yeah. And I also
1: help out authors and researchers on Guadalcanal, so that's that's my interest. I'll yeah, I ten. saw there was
0: an iconic photo of uh, I don't know if it's alligator. Cre- oh no, it's. I don't know which battle it is, but there's a lot of Japanese dead on a beach and you had done a walk and you had put together the photo of you or the filming of you walking on that same beach and you spliced it with this iconic photo. Was, really, it's, uh, I've never seen anything like that before. It was very impressive.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I have to take. I don't know if I take credit for the then and now. It's a lot of the then and now photos comes from a, a fellow in Australia a good friend of mine called Peter Flahavin. And he runs a, a site too. And he's been doing it for years. I and mean, he's been visiting Guadalcanal since the early nineties. And he does a lot of then and now. I think he probably has the world's largest private collection, Guadalcanal photos. And he's, if you've ever seen his work, he's amazing. But yeah, we, we work kind of work together, but it is, the battlefields are, a lot of them are preserved. A lot of them have been built over, but a lot of them are actually preserved too. So you can do the good then and now. That's really
0: interesting. Mm-hmm. So... Uh... I guess to start this off, as I know a lot of the general audience is probably quite confused when it comes to island hopping warfare in general, but uh, I found when, when I was younger, uh, when I was in, in my teens, and I was influenced by things like uh, the Pacific series on HBO, for example, I found it kind of hard at first to grasp, like, why are these men on Guadalcanal? Why are the Japanese there? And what's the importance of it? So uh, maybe you can uh, help explain a bit about why was there a Guadalcanal campaign?
1: Okay, I, want to, um, I won't delve too deep into it. Obviously, uh, you, you viewers are quite aware of Pearl Harbor and the reasons why we uh, or the, the Allies got into the war. But we'll put us, let's um, say, uh, in, in early 1942 in the Solomon Islands and why the Japanese were there and why the Allies were there. Well, the Japanese, um, as you know, um, they were expanding quite rapidly. And because they had the victory fever after six months, they decided well, we'll, we'll keep pushing down into the Southwest Pacific or South Pacific. And what they intended to do was to uh, take Port Moresby in New Guinea and also continue on down to the Solomon Islands and then into Fiji, Samoa, New Caledonia. Uh, the main goal there was, was to cut off the supply line to Australia. And uh, the Japanese had thought if they could cut Australia off, potentially, Australia could sue for a separate peace. Yeah. Uh, we know now that Australia, they had no intentions, uh, no serious intentions of invading Australia. You know, the Australian public and the New Zealand public didn't know it at the time. You know, they thought, you know, he was coming south with that famous propaganda photo. You know, they were on war footing. They were very, very, uh, I wouldn't say afraid, but they were very concerned that the, Austra- or the, um, uh, the Japanese were going to invade Australia and New Zealand. But The um, Japanese were going to cut off uh, the South Pacific and cut off that vital supply line because that was the only way Australia was uh, uh, getting supplies. And also, too, it would deny the U.S. a major staging area a fight back. So Australia was going to be the major, major base they were going to stage out of to their fight back, especially MacArthur being the um, supreme commander the fight back through the yeah, New Guinea and up and up that way to the Philippines. So if you remember in May 42, the Battle of Coral Sea, I don't know if you guys, you haven't covered that yet. I think in your series, you're getting close. Ooh, it's well, getting really
0: it's close, close yeah. to it, yes.
1: Um, but the, the intention of the Japanese was to invade Port Moresby and take Port Moresby and they could control that airfield. And that would allow them to help interdict the shipping and also to um, to strike some of the Northern Australian um, cities and, and, and bases and airfields that the allies had. So, the Port uh, the uh, the Port Moresby invasion was about the, the Coral Sea, so the Americans and the, the Australians stopped them. At the same time they were going to hit Port Moresby, a small contingent was was going to, um, I guess, veer off and hit a place called Tulagi. Now it brings us to the Solomon Islands. Now Tulagi was a, a British well, the Solomon Islands was a British protectorate, so the British uh, ran Solomon Islands. wasn't much happening in the Solomon Islands at the time, but there was uh, had copper or coconut plantations. You know, it was a main, I guess, resource they, they exported. So basically, what happened then was Tulagi was the capital, British capital, colonial seat of the whole the area. And the Australians, in after 41, after December 41, had a small uh, seaplane base there at Tanambogo. So Tanambogo, Gavutu, and um, Tulagi were all little islands uh, very near each other. So the Japanese decided. At the same time they were hitting Port Mozu, they would take Tulagi. Now, by taking Tulagi, what that would provide, one, it provide a, a coverage for their western, um, I guess to cover their, yes, their eastern flank, yeah. or to cover the Japanese left flank, and also to provide a future um, staging area for advance down um, to the rest of South Pacific. Tulagi had a, it still does, obviously, it has a large uh, fleet anchorage, you could put a large fleet in there. It's one of the best uh, anchorage in the South Pacific. So so obviously, the um, I won't put the spoiler out there, or this is a spoiler. The, they didn't win the Battle of Carl Sea. They were turned back. So the Japanese had to hit northern um, New Guinea and go over the Kokoda, uh trailer, Kokoda track, as some people call it. So they landed Bunangoda and came over to the fight. But they still held Tulagi, um, and the Australians and the, and the British, uh, I guess, Fled very quickly. They left behind a few coast watchers, and I'm trying not to delve too deep into details. So the Americans, after the Battle of Midway, um, <clears throat> the Battle of Midway gave the Allies, uh, I guess, uh, a, I guess a push to start some offensive operations. Yeah, because like um,
0: turning capability to do offensives. Yeah.
1: Yes. I mean, it wasn't. It, it's arguable, some people say it's the turning point. For me, a str- a, the turning point of a campaign is when str- the strategic initiative shifts. Yeah. But after midway, the strategic initiative did not shift in the Pacific, because the Japanese were well on the still, offensive. Yeah, they were still, still pushing the South, as you know, in the South Pacific. Um, Because you had, you know, it wasn't until the late October, November, the Japanese um, stopped their offensive operations on Guadalcanal. Was Guaya Canal, and I'll get to in a second. Was a, a Japanese offensive operations, even though the, the Allies started the offensive, but they went quickly to the defense. But <clears throat> so Admiral King, which is the Chief of Naval Operations, you know, he wanted to uh, have a limited offensive, even before Midway, he wanted to have a limited offense, offensive in the um, the Pacific. They started with some carrier sweeps in the Pacific and did some raids, but <clears> that gave them a little bit of a, I guess. Uh, the shift in, in midway gave them a bit of a chance to um, push their offensive ahead of time. So, yeah, the 1st Marine Division, um, they were coming to New Zealand, and they were coming to New Zealand for a couple of reasons. One, to garrison the island, because you can remember all the Australians else, um, else in New Zealand, their main troops were fighting over in Europe. And the whole 2nd um, New Zealand Division was, at that time, probably uh, 41, 42, 40, was fighting in North Africa.
0: Yeah, it's an African campaign.
1: Yeah, so they had the militia. Yeah, they had the militia there. So, one, they were going to garrison. The two, they were going to train for six months, and to to become the um the first striking or the main striking point for the for the allies. So once they landed, they landed with the first contingent, which is the the uh, a regiment and the headquarters element. And they had another regiment uh, at the sea coming, and their seventh Marine regiment was was garrison Samoa at the time. So. Admiral King told Admiral Nimitz, who was the, the head admiral in, this, in the Pacific, basically, oh, I want you to go on the offensive. And then he gave him the date of 1 August. I won't go into too much detail here, but basically what it did, that set the stage for Guadalcanal. The initial, um, initial operation was going to be called Operation Pestilence. It was called Operation yeah. Pestilence, in the fact, and that was, the, they were going to take um, Tulagi the surrounding islands, then the Marines were going to hit Bougainville, then they're going to hit Rabaul. Um, and then Operation Watchtower was going to be the Tulagi and the surrounding islands. Now, initially, like I said, it was Sur- Tulagi and the surrounding islands because of the um, Japanese uh, um, seaplane base. But when I mentioned the Co- uh, Coast Watchers guys, they left behind, they left behind a couple or three of them on Guadalcanal. One of them was Martin Clemens. And he had, between Martin Clemens um, and his native scouts, they worked out, the Japanese were building or as seen the intel, they sent out the Japanese were building an airfield. And how that came about, the Japanese were at Tulagi. Um, they were sending, um, I guess, reconnaissance parties over to Guadalcanal to get cattle because before it was um, coconut plantations, like I mentioned before, so they had a lot of cattle there, obviously to, to um, cut down the grass in the coconut plantations, and also to provide some um, beef, beef steak. Well, the Japanese, you know, they were on Tulagi and they said, Oh, let's go over to Guadalcanal and get some beef steak. So they started looking, you know, um, at the beef steak and bringing the cows back. And then they started looking at the Lunga Plains and they said, We could build an airfield here, cut these coconut trees down, and we can build an airfield. And um, it would really be strategic value to us to do that. So within two weeks, they had the 11th and the 13th construction units. Mainly um composed of um, Korean and some Japanese laborers
0: yeah, the and they started, clear-
1: <laughs> yeah, they started clearing the fields. And then the coast guard said, look, they're building an airfield here. Um, B-17s were, we're doing some bombing raids there. You know, most people don't even realize that the U S bombed uh, the airfield to start with B-17s before the Japanese could complete it. And then the reconnaissance planes picked it up. So that was the reason um, Tulagi and surrounding islands then became the surrounding islands, Tulagi and Guadalcanal to take out that airstrip because allies knew they had this unsinkable aircraft carrier with that airstrip. If they could take it, they could deny the Australians uh, to cut it off. Yep. So I probably went a bit deep in that um, setting the stage, but yeah, we're, we're there now, August 42. Well,
0: I'll let the audience know that uh, there's actually video footage of the Japanese construction of Henderson field. It's uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. It's uh, it's well capped too. It's uh... Shows kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to say a, a lack of construction capability, but certainly a disparity between the Americans and Japanese. The Japanese, it would take them a long time to build those airfields and they weren't up to uh, you know, standard, we'll
1: say that. Yeah, they had to bring a lot of equipment in. I think they were bringing them in at the time. But we'll see later. when Once the Marines landed, they, um, they, um, they loved any bit of the Japanese gear they captured from them.
0: Yeah. Um, so I guess from this point on, some of the first battles. Would you want to delve into uh, Tulagi or Gabbitt? Yeah, I can. I can moment? hit.
1: Yeah, I can talk about it briefly. So on August the seventh, the Marines were going to hit, um, just like I said before, uh, Guadalcanal and Tulagi. Now Tulagi um, had the third um, Special Naval Landing Force garrison, and plus some. Um, Construction, not construction troops, some engineers and some Japanese sailors. And Tanibogo and Gavutu was two nearby islands, probably six, seven hundred yards away, and um, it held the air base, seaplane base. So it had a lot of air personnel and a few um, support personnel there too. It was was about three hundred fifty. Yeah, yeah, it had about three hundred fifty Japanese on Tulagi. And they were dug in. The Japanese Special Naval Landing Forces, I mean, some people call them Japanese Marines, but they weren't in the Marines um, as we, as the U.S. or the, the British Royal Marines were. Yeah, the Special
0: Landing Naval Force, they're, they're the equivalent of Marines, but they're not necessarily the same as the United States Marines now.
1: Yeah, a lot of them call them naval infantry. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, they were like sailors trained to be infantrymen, and they were trained to be assault troops. And the guys on um, the 3rd Curie, I think they're, they're, they were the 3rd Curie, they're named after their naval base. A Special Naval Landing Force at, at Tulagi were made a, mainly reservists, but in saying that, these reservists, I think the average age is in the 30s, but they're pretty switched on um, guys. If you've seen a photo of them, there's a famous photo. Of they're officers and NCOs, and they're all fairly um, large, large, and um, you know, very capable looking fellows. Um, anyway, they dug in on Tulagi, and the Marines knew that it's going to be a hard fight at Gavutu, Tanaboga, and Tulagi. So. They sent the best troops they had at the time, which was the uh, Marine Raider Battalion, 1st Raider Battalion, and the 1st Marine Paratrooper Battalion, the Parachute Battalion. And they sent the 2nd Battalion, the 5th Marines, which is a, a well-trained battalion also. Um, at the time too, they were supported by the 2nd Marines uh, Regiment. Now you'll hear Marines talk about, and some of your re- uh, viewers it, it can get confusing when they're reading things. When, uh, People refer to the second Marines or the first Marines or the fifth Marines or the eighth Marines. They're not talking about divisions. Well, in the U.S. Army and other NATO forces, they say, you know, the first, you know, the first infantry or the second infantry, they mean the divisions. The Marines, when you say first Marines, that means regiment. If they say first Marine division, then obviously that's division. So that sometimes that can get confusing. I've seen things about Iwo Jima, and they say all oh, the 5th Marines were at Iwo Jima. And I said, well, the well, 5th Marines wasn't at Iwo Jima. The 5th Marine Division was at Iwo Jima. So that can get confusing at times. Anyway, the 2nd Marines, 2nd Marine Regiment, was a part of the 2nd Marine Division. Well, they were given on loan to the 1st Marine Division because, like I said earlier, the 7th Marine Regiment was one of the core regiments of the 1st Division, was garrisoned um, Samoa at the time, you know, it had the famous Marines in it, like on H.H. Hanneken and Puller and Barcelona and Page. You know, they, they fleshed out this regiment with the best NCOs and officers and the best troops and the best equipment to ship them out quickly, thinking they were going to be the first to fight. But you know, ironically, they weren't, weren't the first to fight. They joined, joined later in September. But so you had the second Marines there for support. So they landed it, the Japanese expected them to land on one side of the island, which is the only Feasible landing bases at Tulagi, but the Marines landed on the other side of the island at Beach Blue, which had coral, coral reefs. They came over the coral reefs early in the morning, about eight o'clock on the 7th, and they had to jump out of the boats about 100 yards off the shore. Yep. They came in, not a f- shot was fired, it surprised the Japanese. And then basically they, they attacked across the island, had limited resistance until they got to the very, um, the south, yeah, southeast end of the island. And then they hit. A, a cave complex, uh, Hill 281, and you know, the fight was on for 281. So that night the Marines uh, dug in, the Japanese did some limited counterattacks, and then the Marines uh, finished them up the next day. So it was the first time the Marines or the Allies had experienced the Japanese, how the Japanese had set the stage, how the Japanese would fight um, for the rest of the Pacific campaign. You know, we're dug in these caves, we're dug in these bunkers, you're gonna have to kill us all. Um, they only captured three Japanese out of 350. Now, at the same time, I wouldn't say at the same time, probably midday, then about 12 o'clock, the, the first parachute battalion um, attacked uh, Gavutu. And they attacked Gavutu, Gavutu is very, very small, and Anton and Bo are very small. So the first Marine um, parachute battalion hit it head on. And that was the first opposed landing any Marines had in World War II. You know, and they were pinned down on the, the Lever Brothers was the coconut plantation owners, uh, I guess, corporation before the war. So that was where the headquarters is based at, Lever Brothers. So if you look on some of my, my YouTube videos, I've got uh, to log in Tannenbogo and it shows the wharf. The wharf remnants are still there. Oh. Anyway, they, they were pinned down there for a while. When they ended up, um, after a hard fight, they got, had to get reinforced by the 2nd Marines. They sent a uh, battalion from the 2nd Marine Regiment in to support them. And then the, the next day, they attacked Taz, uh, Tannenbogo and there was a concrete causeway that connected both of them. The Marines tried to do a, a small amphibious assault by a rifle company the day before, on the seventh, they were beaten back. It was next a controversial
0: day, decision too. That one, oh, I think, it was yes. Ripertus who sent uh, the unit, and it was one company, wasn't it? Or
1: yeah, it's about uh, yeah, a reinforced company. Yeah, and yeah, and they yeah, they got hit and had to pull back, and then the next day they they had a concentrated effort, you know, with um, close fire and supporting fire on Tannenbogo, and they charged across the uh, causeway. And and I, could, I could talk just you know, on yeah. this alone, but yeah. then it had two tanks. and had two tanks uh, supported, two um, M3 Stuarts. They supported, and they were actually taken out. There was one scene where the Japanese had stopped it. Um, I think they threw a, a, a pipe or a bar in its tracks and stopped it. And then all the like, 30, 40 Japanese just like, like ants just jumped on top of it and was, you know, yeah, pulling his crew out and bashing them to death and trying to burn it. And the Marines had to, you know, um, I think some naval gunfire knocked a few of them off too. But anyway, they, after two days of hard fighting, um, Tulagi, Tanimbogo, and Gavutu uh, were taken. At the same time, in, in August the 7th, the 1st Marine Division, um, at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, was landing on Beach Red or Red Beach which is about 6,000 6 – or 8,000 yards away from Lunga Point when the airfield. So the, reason the Marines picked that area. Um, the Marine intelligence basically told them that Japanese – there were probably three to 4,000 Japanese there, and it was a whole Japanese infantry regiment, and they were going to be yeah. dug in on Lunga Point. That's where the Marines wanted to hit was Lunga Point because it was uh, – Lunga Point is right above uh, the airfield, and they could hit it and take the airfield quickly. Yeah,
0: you get the so point, that, you get the airfield.
1: Yes, and it was, a, it was a good beaches to land on. Not all the beaches there are quite, quite good. So they picked about 6,000 yards to the east at Red Beach. And the reason they kind of picked it was they thought it was going to be undefended. They didn't really want to hit there, but it was hit them where they're not, so to speak. That was the saying. It was a very inflated beach. I mean, it's, it's like a concave. It's like that. Hmm. So it's not the best place to do amphibious invasion because you could yeah. put guns here and guns here, and you could just enfilade the beach. But luckily for the Marines, when they landed, it was without firing a shot. If you ever see the movie, or the uh, HBO. Pacific.
0: Yeah, they're very surprised global. that they're not seeing any resistance. Even go a little bit further in, they're not fine. Well, they find some of the equipment the Japanese left, but yeah.
1: Yes, and I think the only casualty, I still haven't confirmed it. I mean, you read it in all the, the reports that was a, a Marine cut his hand on a coconut. The only casualty. I think that was shown in I mean, the Pacific, too. Yeah. It probably did. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's an urban myth, but it's probably true because I've read it on numerous uh, accounts. Yeah. But so that was, that was August the 7th, so they've landed. And so at this stage, you had about 11,000 Marines um, on Guadalcanal. And you had about five, about, roughly about five, four to 5,000 on um, the other islands of Tulagi uh, in Ganev- uh, and Tanambogo. All right. So the they landed.
0: Marines are on Guadalcanal.
1: Yep. So they landed and um, they were supposed to, they wanted to really take the airfield on the first day. They didn't. So the fifth Marines moved down the coast they got as far as alligator Creek or Illu River on their maps their maps were pretty bad um, they had maps uh, drawn basically from reconnaissance photos and also from the knowledge of the former planters and, yeah. and um, yeah. British colonial officers you know, for example they they looked at the original map and I've seen the original map they had you know they gave out to the troops they had the grassy knoll which is Mount Austin you know it was like 1,600 yards away. But it was something like three or four miles away. If you go there to Guadalcanal, you'll look at it and it just dominates the airfield. And they, they never reached it. Well, they reached it later in campaigns, but the Marines kind of let it go. So the 1st Marine Regiment punched in a bit and they were supposed to take the grassy No, but they got caught up in the, um, the swamps and the jungle. And basically, they, they were recalled back. The 5th uh, Marines were supposed to push across Elu River, Alligator Creek. And um, because they were green troops and some of their commanders, like the regiment commander, he was, a, he was a good commander, but he was old and a bit slow, wasn't as aggressive as some of the younger guys. So I think the division commander had to come up and, and push him a bit. So the next day they took, took the airfield. Um, a few sporadic sniper fires, but they'd surprise the Japanese. The Japanese actually thought the Marines were landing. It was a raid that's why, you know, the storage, they left the, the safe's open, they left everything it is, think the Marines would come in and grab it and run, like an amphibious raid. So they all uh, moved to the jungle. We're just waiting, waiting the Marines out. They said, they'll leave the next day and we'll go back to our camps. But, you know, Marines stayed for, for years, so to speak. The Japanese fled west. So they ran to the jungle and fled west. There, was, there were some combat troops there. There were a guard company. Might have been two guard companies. But the, most of them were construction troops. And a lot of them, um, I don't know exactly how I many, but it had to be over 1,000, were Korean laborers. And the Marines called them termites. The Japanese called them a certain name. But obviously, they wouldn't treated that well by the Japanese.
0: Yeah, they were... Uh... I mean, with the way the Japanese command works, it's the highest-ranking officer abuses the people under him, they abuse the people under them, and then when it goes down the pyramid, it's the Korean laborers who get beaten, or POWs. Uh, better yeah, found. yeah,
1: the pecking order, so to speak. Yeah, it's You know, because you read a lot of POWs, like you said, they, accounts of their accounts are the Korean guards, because the Japanese say it was beneath them to guard POWs, so they used the Taiwan, the, the Formosans, and the, the Koreans. Yeah.
0: The uh, Koreans were the most likely, even though even they didn't surrender often, to surrender.
1: Well, they didn't have a choice to surrender. A lot of times they tried to surrender, probably shot out of sight. Another thing, too, the Marines initially, um, if you've seen a POW, there's a lot of POW photos in the initial days of Guadalcanal. And we call them, like, you know, the beach caps. In Australia, they call them the giggle caps or the, you know, the bush caps. You'll see some photos of some guys in like that. If you ever see those photos, they're generally the, the Korean laborers. But a lot of Koreans uh, surrendered. In, in the um, 1940s, you know, they'd labeled them all Japanese POWs. They didn't say Korean POWs, it was Japanese POWs. And uh, like Sewell and a few of the other uh, marine photographers, some of their photos that were coming back, they still labeled to this day Japanese POWs and most of them are Koreans. And you'll see, and they used the Koreans, I'm trying to get a little sidetracked here. Um, They used the Koreans for a lot of burial parties and working parties. And the Koreans, it was said, if you read the, uh, speaking to one veteran, the the Koreans loved burying the Japanese in the burial parties. They loved, you know, and there's, I've got some photos, i got some photos of the Koreans actually burying the Japanese, Alligator Creek and Coffin Corner. They're assisting the Japanese uh, whole burial parties. Wow. And I guarantee you can see some of them laughing because obviously the way they were treated by the Japanese, there was no love lost.
0: No, they so, were starved and beaten. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So, and some of those poor guys tried to surrender to the Marines from their beginning, but you know, the Marines, especially being green troops, and um, you know, they wouldn't, wouldn't taking any, um, any you know, precautions, so to speak. Some of these poor guys got shot out of hand, you know, but then they worked out that let's capture some of these guys, you know, once so they got a bit of control of the Marines, not saying Marines were undisciplined or anything, but you can imagine in a very um, tense situation like that, especially at night. Yeah, they got their hands
0: um, on uh, a warrant officer, I think, who ended up yeah, giving them the, some intelligence.
1: Yeah, that's the Getchie Patrol. You know, that's mm-hmm. another one I could do a whole episode on. I plan to do one. I'm working on one for my channel now. Oh. Get you. Um, so yeah, so it brings us to the Marines dug in. They formed a horse shape, uh, about a 15 mile perimeter or 18 mile horseshoe shaped perimeter. It wasn't a full perimeter on uh, Linga Point because they didn't have enough troops for that. So they they had troops on the east, west, and in the, in the front frontage, which is the amphibious assault. They're being Marines, they're expecting the Japanese to do an amphibious assault with a counterattack. They knew the Japanese would counterattack very quickly. Um, so they, they beefed up their east flank, west flank, and the, the Lunga Point flank. But They left the southern flank basically uh, unguarded. I mean, I wouldn't say completely unguarded. They had outposts on their southern flanks, and they also had roving patrols. But they didn't have enough troops to, to do a full... 360 perimeter, it wasn't until like September the 18th when the 7th Marine Regiment landed, that Archer Vandegrift, who was the division commander had enough troops to do a full uh, garrison. So the main, initially when the Marines landed, that was the first offensive by the US in World War II, the first offensive action, 7th of August. But as soon as they landed, they became defensive. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, the Japanese were on the offensive, still on the offensive in that time. So once the Marines landed, they took defensive, took something, and they dug in, and they waited. And the whole objective, in fact, um, you could probably say for the six-month period, one of the most, um, and most important pieces of terrain in the whole South Pacific was Henderson Field, the unsinkable aircraft carrier. Because the Americans ever lost it, I you know, was highly doubtful they would uh, retain Guadalcanal. Because once they landed some planes there, but, and it, it, bring it, it brings me up the Bloody Ridge, I guess, or sorry, um, Alligator Creek.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: So the Marines, after about a week, they completed the airfield. The Japanese uh, had almost completed it. In fact, they were having a bit of a party, the not before. It's kind of a you know a, a completion party. Well, that's what some of the Marines said. There was enough sake and beer uh, when the Marines landed. And as soon as the Marines landed, the warehouses, they put Marine guards very quickly on those they keep you know keep the, the sock in the beer um, I bet under, did, yeah the wrap yeah but <clears throat> that brings me to a point where the marines I won't talk about balasabo island because that's another episode but balasabo islands was probably the 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 in August the ninth was the greatest uh, surface defeat in US naval history. Yeah, Australian much. cruiser say I mean they lost four cruisers and um in a period of 30 minutes you had over a thousand sailors died in less than 30 minutes. Yep. And to put that in perspective, um, 1600 us, uh, Marines and us soldiers died in the whole, on, on land in the whole six month campaign. But in 30 minutes on August, uh, the ninth, eighth and ninth, you had over a thousand sailors went down in less than 30 minutes over 5,500 sailors, us sailors and, and Australian sailors. Um, mainly U.S. sailors, died in the six-month campaign of Guadalcanal So that's – but what happened after that, the Navy had to pull their their ships out. Yeah, and, the and great Fletcher logistical issue. Had, air cover. Yeah, they, they gave him. he uh, promised them two days of air cover, but he pulled out before because they'd lost a lot of air and um, fighter planes in the last couple of days and then their fuel. So they, Fletcher had already pulled out. But, but when the morning came and there was no coverage for the transport, um, Turner, the amphibious assault, Navy uh, amphibious assault commander pulled the, uh, the transports out. So it left, the, and it, when the transports left, a lot of the Marine supplies left with them. Because Marines had, they'd combat loaded, because once they la- reached New Zealand, they had to reload their ships and they combat loaded as best they could, they'd leave a lot behind. Um, they combat loaded um, enough supplies for 60 days worth of food and four days worth of fighting. Uh, or ammunition and, and things for fighting, sustained fighting. So when they pulled out, they reckon they only had about 30 days of rations, if that, and probably about two days of, of, of fighting, full on fighting, they call it units of fire in those days. So luckily for them, and you hear anyone's reading anything about Guadalcanal, they talk about how the, the Marines survived on the Japanese rice and Japanese supplies, which is true. The Japanese left tons of rice, tons of, of, of tin, fish, and, and, and other things. And they left a lot of um, equipment. A lot of it was in pretty bad repair. But um, I've got a list of all the stuff that the Marines um, captured, I guess, from the Japanese construction equipment. The Marines were able to unload one, offload one bulldozer. And that bulldozer, I don't know if it's called Old Faithful, and I forgot the name of it, but they, they used it a lot. And they they used some Japanese bulldozers and and rollers and stuff. Between the Marine pioneers and the engineers, and the pioneers are like combat engineers, um, they completed the uh, runway after about a week. So now they had to wait for airplanes. And so on August the 20th um, was a good day for the Marines because the first two Marine um, squadrons landed. They had a squadron of um, Wildcats and a squadron of dive bombers. And they both landed, and in fact, a division commander met them at the uh, airfield, kind of high-fived them when they came off. I guess you could say. Yeah, I think it was Enterprise <laughs> that brought them. Uh, so uh, twelve Sorry? Dauntless or
0: uh, fourteen Wildcats,
1: twelve Dauntless. I think it was there. about 30, 30 planes all up. Yeah, yeah.
0: And that Certainly was um, welcomed.
1: Smith. <laughs> yeah, Smith and Magnum and the rest of these guys. Um, so they landed uh, at the same time that the Japanese. Uh, their intel, which, and the Marines suffered from it. the U.S. suffered from this too, the lack of intel. That was one of the, I guess, common themes in the Guadalcanal campaign. So the Japanese intel uh, basically stated there's probably about 2,500 to 3,000 Marines. It was a raid. Obviously, they're, they're gonna hit. They didn't leave, but they just take this airfield with a small amount of Marines gonna hold it. So you can imagine at that time, the Japanese had not, been real defeated i mean they've had a few setbacks in um you know malaya and and Bataan and in a few other places you know as you guys covered in your in your series already um i seen your series the other day and it was, it was in um the philippines where they wiped out two japanese infantry battalions and i said oh i didn't, didn't think the japanese had lost that much but yeah it wiped out two whole battalions so that's yeah. something you don't read much about but the Japanese, I put it uh, about what I was talking about. The Japanese had never suffered any um, major setbacks or major defeats, um, so they're on the roll, so to speak, and had that victory fever.
0: Victory disease was rampant
1: in them. Yeah, exactly. And they underestimated, you know, the intel, underestimated their opponents. Um, so they thought, well, they're holding a large perimeter. There's only about two, two to three thousand of them. We can easily punch through. So I had a unit called the uh, the 28th Regiment, which is one of their best assault units. And the 20th Regiment was slated to go into Midway. They were supposed to invade Midway. Um, and uh, Colonel Achiki was their commander. And he was a, a pretty good commander, too. If you ever read the Marco Polo incidents and stuff, he was involved in the Marco Polo incident in 37. Yeah. He was one of the commanders on the scene. He was one of their infantry um, instructors. So he, he was rated very high. Um, so... Let me just get this right. They went to – after they didn't get to invade midway, so they went to
0: – Fortunate Guam. for them.
1: Guam, yeah. Either they're, they're on butchered. Guam. <laughs> I think Guam or truck at the time. I think it might have been on Guam.
0: It was Guam, yeah.
1: Yeah, they're getting orders to go back to Tokyo. And the, the Japanese 17th Army, which was based in Rabaul, remember they were fighting – their main objective was at Port Moresby. They were fighting on yeah. Kokoda. They are fighting for Port Moresby. The Army didn't really want to deal with Guadalcanal because they thought we don't want to get sidetracked the 17th Army commander. So they said, what units do we have now not to deviate from the units we have in, in New Guinea? And they said, well, we've got the 28th Regiment. I'll send those guys down. So the, the Chiki took his best guys and formed the, um, the first echelon, about 1,000, a, a little over 1,000 men. They put them on fast transports. They shot them straight down to uh, Tavu Point, which is in the uh, eastern side of Guadalcanal, yeah, in the they, Atlantic. Uh...
0: They used destroyers for this because they had to get them over so fast. They had very few days' worth of rations. It was a real quick deal.
1: Yeah, because they thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll take these guys. Well, they gave the Cheeky land at Tabu Point, they gave them – these orders were basically to either make an assessment. If you think you could take it, take it. If not, wait to your es- second echelon. Another five or 600 guys will be landing. They had some of his artillery and heavy guns in the second echelon. Just wait for them and do a concentrated attack. Ichiki landed, they did his uh, reconnaissance, I won't go into too much detail about a a patrol called the Brush Patrol with the Marines attacked and killed a lot of their officers. Anyway, they made the assessment and Ichiki, um, we don't really know what he was thinking at the time. Um, Japanese infantry tactics at at, at that stage, um, basically um, pushed for a night assault, infiltration uh, techniques, you know, the old bamboo spear, Uh, tactics where they just run straight in with a bamboo um or sorry bamboo with a with a bayonet and attack a concentrated point they also use infiltration tactics like i said if they could go around it they would and um, i love to get
0: around the units and surprise them
1: yeah yeah that was what they did and i equate it like i was taught many years ago in the range about maneuver warfare it's just like if you take water and pour it down a hill it takes the path of least resistance and goes (laughs) around an obstacle, and that's that's what you do. Unfortunately, they they didn't decentralize the command with the Japanese um, NCOs and and junior officers. Once they got command, this is your assault plan. They didn't have anything like we do now with the commander's intent or the Western forces where you don't give that initiative to the junior leaders because on the battlefield, things could change very quickly. You know, and you need to have that initiative to go, okay, my commander's intents to do this. So I'm gonna push toward that goal. You know, without, especially the Japanese um, army at the time, they said, take that hill. They will take that hill no matter what cost. You know, they won't go around the hill, whatever. They might want infiltration, but if, whatever their last orders are, that's what they'll do. Assault that hill, they will assault the hill. But anyway, um, Alligator Creek or Ilu River, you know, on the Marine maps at the time, it's called the Teneru River, mis- mislabeled. Um, the Marines had had some intel that the Japanese were coming. They knew the Japanese regular army was there. Like I said before, the, um, the brush patrol was uh, named after a Marine captain who ambushed the Japanese down the track. And the Japanese didn't expect the Marines to do active aggressive patrolling. So they ambushed a, a Japanese patrol, killed a number of officers, and they found out these guys are very fresh. And the Japanese regular army, they hadn't seen any regular army at that time. They're, they're here. Um, then you had some Solomon Island scouts. I'll put a plug in for the Solomon Islanders. Um, I know the family of this fellow is called Jacob Boza. He's a very, very famous, he's most famous Solomon Islander, Sir Jacob Boza, I should say. Um, and the anyone read the Guadalcanal campaign knows about Boza. You know, there's statues of Bozas there. He was a former uh, British colonial uh, police officer, Sergeant Major in the police force, and just retired, Boza. And um, he started working for Clemens and he was, started doing uh, scouting behind the lines. Anyway, he was captured too at one stage by the Japanese, and they the bandied him tied to a tree and beat him up quite bad and said, "Look, give us to tell us about the, the Marines." There's a few accounts on it, but the, the the account it seems to ring the truth is that they untied him and they had, well, they had his hands tied and they were. He says, "I'll show you where they are. Come follow me." He knew how many Marines were there and he was leading them there, and you know they had him with bandits. They'd already stabbed him in uh, a bit, but then. Once he got to a certain point, uh, the Marines outpost started shooting and stuff. Then they bayonetted him, and he jumped into the bushes and ran. And he popped out. Um, the PFC called uh, Bruley. Bruley seen him popping out over the over the river. And he said, "Me no jap man. Me 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 vooza no shoot him or something like that in Pidgin. And he was bleeding half to death. And he said, "The Japanese are coming. There's a whole bunch of them." But it isn't like the old Paul Revere saying, "You know, vooza." the Marines are just sitting there doing nothing, And you know, Vooza ran out of the jungle, go, oh, the Japanese are coming. And then, they, you know, it saved the Marines. But he did give some great information that it helped. He later became very valuable to the Marines in, um, in his scouting. You know, he, he wouldn't expected to live. And Vooza always said he was like 50% American because they gave him blood transfusions. It's quite yeah, a funny I story. I wouldn't say, wouldn't say funny story, but Martin Clemens, when they brought Vooza in, he gave the information he's laying there and they thought he was dying. So they had him outside the house or, or a tent or something and they've called for martin clemens and they said oh one of your men's here and he goes i'll i'll be with him at least to his end you uh, know he goes oh you know he started asking he said tell me and he says i'll basically my last testament okay and he's tell me and he, you know tell aunt so-and-so and tell uncle so-and-so and cut and he started talking more and more and more he says well maybe he's not dying he says can we get this guy to the hospital so he got into the hospital and he started getting blood transfusion so he gave american blood so to speak and he used to say he was 50 percent american and saved him but he really became very valuable especially during the um long patrol by Carson's raiders in, in november loser i'm trying not to, to get very detailed here but i could go off on any of these little tangents and talk about <laughs> any of them but anyway bring you back to the japanese the japanese were um the marines had the outpost there they knew the japanese were coming down what the marines um, three or four days before, the 2nd Battalion, uh, the, uh, the 1st Marine Regiment, had dug in. The whole battalion with two companies and had another reserve. They dug in um, on the west bank of the Alligator Creek, and they dug in. They had, like, coconut log bunkers. They had, they had overhead covers with sandbags, as much sandbags. They didn't have much sandbag. Because when the Marines, they only offloaded 18 uh, spools of barbed wire. The rest yeah. of them got punched away, and they used a lot of the barbed wire from the coconut plantations they stripped the coconut plantation barbed wires and reused them huh, okay. in fact on the on the sandbar which was only passable because they had a co- uh, coastal track uh, like a plantation track government track and it ran wasn't a bridge over the, the Ilu river it ran on the the sandbar and they that was the crossing point to sandbar in any vehicles on certain times a day obviously and um what the marines did one when i guess very motivated private, I guess you could say, told his lieutenant, he goes, sorry, you there's know, some barbed wire here off this, this old plantation barbed wire. Can I put one strand over the, um, the the sandbar mouth? He goes, yeah, that's a good idea, private, go do it. So they did that. They put one strand, all so had one strand of barbed wire, they put it about apparently um, knee high. That was a Marine's secret weapon. Um, so the Japanese attacked at night. They said, what we'll do, we'll, we'll do a full-on assault directly across the mouth of the river you know, bamboo spear tactics, you know, we had, they had some 70 millimeter guns, um, small, uh, infantry housers, had some heavy machine guns and had their, their 50 millimeter, uh, grenade launchers or knee mortars as some people call them. And they had enough there to provide some form of a base of fire against the Marine position. But to put it, uh, to go back what I was saying, the Marines had two reinforced companies or two companies. When I said reinforced, I had, um, heavy weapons, so they had some the 37-millimeter anti-tank guns and heavy machine guns and some 50 cals And they had them dug in on those bunkers all the East Bank, and they were supported. The Marines had four battalions of artillery. They had three battalions of 75-millimeter howitzers, mountain howitzers, and they had a battalion of 105 millimeters. Their 5th battalion was still in New Zealand. It was 155 millimeters, but because of late, they didn't bring them over until, I think, the last of October, November, Anyway, they were supported, um, heavily supported, and had their obviously had the 81 millimeter, 61 millimeter mortars all sided in. So the Japanese hadn't really hit any concentration like that. These Marines, a lot of the special guys in the first Marine regiment was all joined after January of 42. So they're very, young, very junior. They had good NCOs, very experienced NCOs and officers, but very junior Marines. They only had six months of training, but they're very keen. They're very young, 18, 19 years old. These guys, the Marines had the youngest. Uh, Per average of all the U.S. armed forces, I think the average age of a a U.S. Army soldier was twenty-five or twenty-six. Average age of a Marine was nineteen. All these young, motivated (laughs) kids—you know—do anything. Anyway, they had them. They had them dug in. The Japanese did that night. They did two assaults across the mouth of uh, the um, two major assaults across the uh, the mouth of the Alligator Creek. Um. Now go back to that barbed wire that that young motivated PFC put out. The Japanese at night was advancing. You can imagine they they clumped them in, they're advancing across the mouth. And the Marines knew they were coming.
0: It was interesting his choice to just go straight through that from the Japanese. They'd really have the another system. choice.
1: They, you know, the the it was more of a tidal if you look at my um my video on alligator creek, you'll see it's still just like it is today. It's a more a tidal lagoon. It's fairly okay. deep there, too. It's a tidal lagoon. I mean, it does have fresh water it comes in. It's mainly a tidal lagoon. Um, so it's fairly wide there, and it's, you, you wouldn't try to, you know. And there is some crocodiles in there. I think at the time, of the, after the Marines were there for a while, the crocodiles left because, you know, you put a few, few thousand Marines in there, the crocodiles are not going to hang around. But, you know, you hear the stories, you know, oh, the crocodiles are eating at night. I, I don't know if that's true, but it sounds pretty cool. Um, now, they attacked across uh, the mouth. And the first Japanese hit that barbed wire and it, and it momentarily stunned them or stopped them. They didn't know what to, because you can imagine trying to run across all of a sudden you hit a barbed wire and it was like an accordion effect. The guys in the front stopped, the guys in the back hit them. And when they did that roughly at the same time, and the Marines said they started, they said they started yelling and jabbering and, and they didn't know what was going on. And that's when they opened up with a 37 millimeter anti-tank gun you know, firing hundred 128, 126 pellets of 30 cal. It'd be like 130 something um, rifles going off at the same time, giant shotgun blasts, just, just cut them down like a sight. And then, then the heavy machine guns started opening up, and the mortars and the, the rifles and the BARs and everything started just pounding. And they had some good infillating grazing fire in the Marines. The grazing fire, as you know, is is you put a machine gun about knee high. And that's and you fire the grazing fire. That's what machine guns fire. And normally they cut, cut you down and then, then hit you in the head or the rest of your body and they, they cut you down. That's what it's designed for because you want to put your marine, or machine guns high because it might fire high. Grazing fire is great fire. And infillade fire, I mean, look at World War I, infillade fire killed me, I'm sorry, me and thousands. Um, so, so the first two assaults, I mean, the first assault, they just pushed through and they, they overran a few of the Marine positions. They actually took out some of the 37 millimeter gunners and some of the Marines infantry guys who knew a little bit about, well, I think one guy knew how to fire a 37. He just grabbed some volunteers and said, jump on this 37. So obviously between that and the Marine machine guns we were getting a lot of Japanese fire. You know, there's one story, you got, um, three Marines, um, they made a movie out of it too. It was uh, Schmidt, uh, Rivers and Diamond. And, um, and, um, die um, yeah, I mean, gets shot. Rivers, Johnny Rivers is on the machine gun. They're all on heavy machine gun crew, and he's firing. Then he gets shot and killed. And apparently, he's supposed to fire another 200 rounds, and then they push him to the side, and then Al Schmidt gets on the gun. He's firing, and, and Diamond's the, the team leader. He's directing, Then you know, obviously, the Japanese were concentrating their fire on their bunker because they were killing a lot of Japanese. It was their main bunker. The Japanese had to take that bunker out. And, you know, Japanese grenades were landing left or right. Well, I think... Is a Japanese grenade or a Japanese knee mortar around landed and um, temporarily uh, or did temporarily, permanently blinded Smith? So he's, his face is, uh, he suffered wounds, he couldn't see. Then I think Diamond couldn't, his arms were wounded, he couldn't fire. So uh, they became a team, then they kept firing. So Diamonds was his eyes and Smith was his, was his hands. So they you know, both earned Navy Crosses. I think all three earned Navy Crosses and Johnny Rivers. And um, yeah, so they, I think it was a movie. I forgot the movie. It's actually made during the war. Uh, Schmidt, somebody, I know it. Um, so yeah, they, so they stopped two attacks. So the, the Japanese decided what we'll do. They had some of the engineers try to go across the river at one point, but they didn't go too far. But what a cheeky said, okay, well, obviously these guys are more than we'd expect. It's what I'll do. I'll do my third assault. It was getting toward daybreak. Instead of going across the sandbar, they went out into the ocean a bit, came down, bypassed the sandbar, and was going to attack straight up the beach. Well, they ran straight into, there's a good photo I got, it shows a pillbox and it shows, in fact, there's a famous time-life photo, you know, so the Japanese half buried in the, in the sand, it looks like they're sleeping, there's a famous Japanese photo, or sorry, time-life photo of the Japanese are in the sand, and that was the, the element that tried to attack up the beach. Or, or from the ocean. Sorry, they came in from the seen ocean. That photo. Yeah, so they, they, they wiped out all three assaults. Now, when daylight, daylight fully broke, the Japanese at that stage, uh, there's a bit of contention of how Ichiki died. They said, well, I think the Japanese had came up with a great story as, you know, he was so dishonored and ashamed that he went back with his adjutant and he burned his colors and he committed. Um, subuku. Yeah, Subuku. You know, that sounds good. But knowing the probably the leader he was and what, there's been some reports, not too many Japanese lived there. Um, they thought he probably died in the third assault, leading the third assault.
0: I'd and imagine he was lead know. the
1: last assault because there's a few elements that come in because after that third assault, the Japanese appeared very disoriented, very disorganized. You know, they had no leaders. I think all their leaders actually died, including Ichiki. So the Marines, they said, Well, the Japanese are over there. They're not doing any more assault. We can see them across in the coconut groves. So that's when the Marine commander says. They're over there. I want to get them out. So what they did was then they took that another battalion basically envelop. So they went down the creek and came up and, and cut the Japanese off and enveloped them. Then they had the Marine tank platoon come across the sandbar and then they just basically killed the Japanese. And that's what you see in the, in the Pacific series where you know, some Japanese tried to surrender and they, they blew themselves up with grenades and yeah. they tried to kill the Marines. And and that was when the marines first seen it how the japanese fought as in not surrendering mm. and um yeah anyway they were out of out of like a thousand japanese i think only 100 made it back or yeah, even we, not made it back i think about 30 or 40 made it back they had 100 left in the rear guard
0: yeah he left the rear guard of 100 and he had like 30 something guys yeah. that escaped made it
1: back yeah and some did try to surrender but yeah the marines wouldn't take any surrender because I'll, I'll mention briefly about the Getchy patrol, and the Getchy patrol was the reconnaissance patrol on August twelfth, um, with the division uh, lieutenant colonel, or sorry, colonel, um, intel officer, and he led this patrol, and they were basically—I won't go into detail about it, because—but um, they were basically killed, and. And uh, there was a Japanese warrant officer, neighbor warrant officer had captured. And the story was the Japanese had a white flag and they were trying to surrender. Then it was this deceitful and they ambushed the Marines and they butchered them. Now to butcher them, butcher them is fact, they did butcher them, but probably now we know that it wasn't an elaborate trick. The white flag was probably the normal Japanese flag, you know, with the, the red um, meatball, they call it, the red uh, signal in the middle. middle. Um, the one officer, as soon as they were landing at night, he was saying, oh, you're landing in the wrong place. You know, I don't want to land here. You know, these, these guys are pretty, because they'd, they'd uh, reinforced, uh, I think a week later, with some Japanese Special Naval Landing Infantry guys and some Guard Company guys, and they didn't want to surrender because they thought there would be some Japanese construction troops would surrender. But anyway, that kind of set the stage. I call it the Marines' blood vendetta for the rest of the Pacific War. Because even, you know, if you read Eugene Sledge's great memoir, he talks about, you know, even being told about this in 1944, and it probably it was like a rallying cry, even in boot camp, you know, remember you remember these deceitful Japanese, you know, they're tricky. So that was that set the stage for the Marines, that mindset. And then when you had the battle of Alligator Creek, where these guys weren't surrendering, and even the division commander said, I've never seen troops such as these, you know, the Marine division commander he said, these guys don't surrender. You know they're deceitful and they're tricky, and then when they're trying to blow themselves up, you know, or trying to lure the marines in and take as many marines out, they kind of set the stage. So after that, the marines basically had unwritten unwritten rule: we're not, especially the marine infantry guys on the front line, we're not taking prisoners. You know they don't they don't take prisoners, and we don't take prisoners. There was no the Japanese did take some American prisoners in Guadalcanal campaign, but they killed them shortly after that, after they you know uh, tortured them and try to get some information or just. Just band them just to um make them scream and yell. Just yeah, a a common tactic to yeah. to make the other guys a bit scared, so to speak, but didn't work with the Marine. Anyway, um after that battle, um, so the Japanese, uh, the second echelon landed over cheeky about a week later. So the the Japanese thought, okay, well, these are a little, this is a more serious than we thought. Um
0: it was the first major loss of for the Japanese. It was an eye opener for ground forces.
1: Yes, um, being from being in Australia, it, it get a quick argument about what was the first, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. land defeat in the Milne Bay, which was a week later. And so it's always argument. Both of them, both of them were good defeats. I mean, uh, Milne Bay was the first, I guess, overall. They they say um, Alligator Creeks a local. And Milne Bay, they were completely turned back, which they were. So they're both not to, to take anything away from Milne Bay or or Alligator Creek. I mean, it's one of those pride things, the thing ego things on both sides. Uh, we had the first one. We had the first one. Um. So yeah. So the Japanese were set back a bit. They still thought wasn't that many Marines there, and they Port Moresby was their main objective, and the Japanese army thought well. This is getting a bit out of hand now. We don't want to commit any more forces because we want all our reinforcements to go into PNG. But they had a brigade at that stage called the 35th. Oh, I'll bring it back to the, um, the Air Force. Air Force, the Marines, air landed on the 20th. They actually helped out on the 21st. They flew. Yeah, um, they, cactus strafed did, the Japanese. yeah. yeah they strafed the Japanese. Alligator Creek. So everyone got involved in this poor Japanese. They were getting smashed. By everyone.
0: Yeah, it was Japanese who were trying to escape during the battle on a, a part of a beach, and then the Cactus Air Force came in and strafed them.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah they, they, yeah, they were getting everything. They were getting tanks. In fact, it was old Marine um, gunnery sergeant, supposed to be one of the best shots in the division. He won all these uh, rifle competitions in the 30s and 20s and things, and I forgot what his name, gunnery sergeant. And when the Japanese were out in the ocean, you know, just trying to escape, he walked up and he had his old campaign hat, like the drill instructor hat. He had a shooting jacket, like a, the normal range shooting jacket. And he, he stood there and he got in a nice position. He put his sling on. And um, and the guys were watching him. They go, oh, here he goes, our best shot. And he, a couple of first rounds he missed. And I went, oh, what's going on here? Then apparently he got his, what do they call it? He got his groove in a bit. Then he started shooting a lot of Japanese. Poor guys. Um, but, yeah, so it set the stage and had a 35th brigade. And you've mentioned them in some of your um, podcasts and and YouTube, um, Kawaguchi's brigade.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: I forgot the, where they were at, somewhere in the Pacific. They, they didn't uh, was Kawaguchi Sumatra, I think. Oh, I'm not sure. 35th brigade. Anyway, okay. they they were they were trained. And they were spoke. they were part of South Seas detachment. And they were slated to go into Port <clears throat> Port Um or sorry on the Kakota to reinforce. They were, they were going to be the first main reinforcements, I believe, to to assist those guys. Anyway, they had to divert them. And they said, yeah. "Okay, Kawaguchi had about six thousand guys, and um, they were based on the based around the one hundred twenty fourth regiment." Um, so yeah, they took the thirty fifth brigade, and Kawaguchi is probably the best overall Japanese commander. I mean, it's arguably um, of the whole campaign. So what they did with Kawaguchi, um, they landed. At Tabu point and, they, uh, and some of his guys like colonel oka was the, the division or the regimental commander 124th him and his headquarter group another battalion landed on um the east side or sorry the west side and uh, kawaguchi and the rest of his guys landed at Tabu point same place as chiki um, just due to shipping so they landed and what they were going to do is <clears throat> the reconnaissance planes were flying over and they seen how the marines were Reinforced on the, the flanks and in the front, but they didn't have anyone in the back. And if you look at a map, well, with, with um, Edson's Ridge or Bloody Ridge, it, it goes straight to the um, airfield. Oh, sorry, I got a cat going crazy here. He always does this. Um, only when I'm on a podcast or something, he'll, he'll do this.
0: Oh, I I know full well. I have two parrots and that's why <laughs> i've been clicking the mute button this entire podcast because they keep screaming like my name and stuff
1: <laughs> well he's got his arms coming through the door pushing the door and it's like quite yeah. funny making me laugh um no he's got i think door. yeah
0: kawaguchi was too match if i remember i yeah 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 we covered that not too long ago yeah
1: yeah no it's, it's pretty good um so so they landed in kawaguchi's plan, and he shows well i know i'm going to be moving all my units through the night typical japanese um, tactics and i need a a concentrated point or a place i can move them quite quickly and bloody ridge is only a thousand yards away from the airfield if you look at a map coming straight out of the jungle if you hit they hit on top of that ridge you could put you know put a couple of three thousand guys at that stage he had with him he goes straight down that um that that ridge so yeah uh, bloody ridge forms a natural line straight to the it's like a dagger so to speak or a highway straight to to the airfield so there were Constance flights and their constants had picked up this is basically undefended they also had captured an american um, army pilot like a week or two earlier a week earlier and they obviously tortured him and he said the um he confirmed that the the rear of the the marine lines were basically undefended i think he was one of the 67th um pursuit squadrons of the the p400s I know, the i've never 100. heard of this huh. yeah yeah and um <clears throat> Anyway, they, the Marines had squads up there with the engineers and had a combat outpost and was very undefended. It was actually a good plan. So what he was gonna do, is gonna, the rest of the second echelon a uh, uh, Cheeky, the guys at Cheeky didn't wait for, the rest of his unit, um, they call him the Bear Battalion, uh, mainly his heavy guns, like 37, 47 millimeter anti-tanks and a few other infantry guys. They were gonna hit the, the, um, on the right flank, a place called the Overland Trail. I have a good video on that. It, it, um, um, William Bosch, a good historian actually wrote a book about, or sorry, wrote a good article about the, I think, um, got the name of the title, but it's a good article about it. And, um, Adderby, uh, wrote a book too, about Old Land Trail and it's very perfectly preserved. So if you go on my um, YouTube site, you'll see it. Anyway, that was going to be one diversionary attack. A second diversionary attack was going to come from Colonel Oak and his, uh, battalion going to hit the Marines, um, Western flank. So it's gonna be a simultaneous attack. So there were gonna be two uh, flank attacks to draw. See, once again, the Japanese thought the Marines were only had about 3000 guys spread out over 15 miles. So that, that's why they thought they could concentrate a few thousand Japanese in one area. They'll just overrun the Marine. So two simultaneous attacks on the flank and the main attack with um, Kawaguchi and his three battalions. So basically a reinforced regiment was going to come straight up and over the ridge, straight into the airfield and over on the airfield. Great, a great plan. But unlike most of the, the three main Japanese attack on Guadalcanal it was uncoordinated and they underestimated the terrain, the, the jungle. I mean, contrary to what a lot of people think, Japanese were you not know, expert jungle fighters that people tend to, to make them. Um, They're you know, just they willing to take the risk. Time. Exactly. They they did. They they looked at it and said, "Well, if we can we could do it. Potentially, we we'll, we will do it." And we we'll, and once we commit ourselves to at- the attack, we will we have to keep attacking.
0: Yeah, they know, even though if the odds arrive, are, arrive,
1: yeah. yeah, I forgot what the Japanese called it, but their doctrine says if if especially in those early days, you know, they, they didn't even talk about defense hardly. There's they all things about attack, attack, attack. Even if the odds are against us, we will still attack. That was our, you know, our doctrine, our philosophy.
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway, they um. They moved in, and the marines at that stage had it undefended. So Colonel Edson and the first raiders they brought them from Tulagi, <clears throat> they put them in a rest area around Lunga. And there was reports that the Japanese had a, a, a supply base at um, Tabu Point at Tenemboga, and. Um, Edson asked the chief of staff, uh, Thomas, of the 1st Marine Division, he says, look, we're raiders. Let us do an uh, amphibious assault or do a raid on their, their supply yeah. dump. So they, <clears throat> on the, t- I'm trying to think, the 10th, 10th of September, forty-two, they did a raid on their, anyway, they, they, uh, not to go into too much detail on that, they overran their supply dump and destroyed a lot of their um, supplies, and that was Kawaguchi's main supply base. They destroyed some of his artillery, all his supplies, so they didn't have any, any food, just was on their carrying. So their logistics was cut off. And then once he did the raid, they moved back to the, the Lunga perimeter in their, in their boats, the, the Marines. Well, Kawaguchi instead of, he was some of his commanders said, let's turn back and, and fight these guys. He goes, "Not. let's continue on with our plan. So Edson came back and he spoke, him and the, um, Thomas which was the chief of staff, spoke to the division commanders, says, look, these guys, we know there are about three thousand of them, or four, three or four thousand, are moving through the jungle. division commander thought they were going to hit them on the same um, flank that October 21st with the alligator creek. They were hit us there again, but Thomas and Edson says no. If I was that commander, I would attack straight out of the jungle. And then once the scouts said they started to turn and go into the jungle, said so they're coming this way. The only way they could really sell it to division commander, Edson says, look, you know my troops are a bit tired. Can we at least move up on that uh, bloody ridge? Um, And at that stage, the 1st Marine Division had moved their command post up on Bloody Ridge to get away from the V-ring, they call it, like the center ring, because every day the Japanese were bombing the area around Henderson, and the 1st Marine Division headquarters were very near Henderson, so they they moved his headquarters up on the ridge. He says, can we move up on the ridge just to be your bodyguards at least, or give my guys a bit of a rest? They go, yeah, move them up there. So they moved up there. Um, They were there for about three or four hours, resting, and then Edson says start digging in. So the you know, Marine Raiders is all this hell of a rest area we got here. So they started digging in what limited supply or supplies. They had like a few strands of barbed wire and then it's all coral regions. So they didn't dig too deep. And, um, he set his guys up in the line and he, and he waited for the Japanese. And then the Japanese at that stage didn't know the Marines were up there. I think some of their scouts that went up and their reconnaissance planes were flying over and they probably seen, yep, there are some Marines here. So instead of attacking up and over, what we'll do, we'll, we'll, we'll flank them. Infiltration, we'll go around them and cut them off and then go by the Lunga River and, and cut them off and hit the airfield that way. So on the night of the 13th and 14th, yeah, 13th and 14th, um, Kawaguchi only had one battalion ready to go. You know, everyone, a couple of them were like ran to each other. Other ones were lost in the jungle. You only had one ready to go. Um, now, the day before, the the Japanese would bomb Henderson, but the day before they actually dropped some bombs actually on um, Bloody Ridge itself Redson's Ridge. And that, that's another thing, let the Marines know, okay, they are coming because they've started bombing the ridge now. So <clears throat> I think 30 minutes before the assault, uh, the Japanese had a, a couple of cruisers and some destroyers. You know, they'd come through every night and drop supplies off and they would swing by the Marine positions and bombard so the Marine Tokyo positions. Tokyo Express? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the rat runs, they called them too. The Japanese called rat runs. The Marines called them Tokyo yeah. Express. Ned came in and they put the spotlights on um, Edson's Ridge itself. And they started bombarding it a bit. A lot of it was overshooting, actually, the ridge and hitting in the assembly areas of the Japanese. So they weren't doing the Japanese that, that good. But um, Kawaguchi, he committed. He, was, he already committed to the assault. So one battalion of his three was only assaulted that night. So they managed to go around the Marines flank and C Company of the Raiders, they overran C Company. Um, and they were in like platoon size elements outposts and they, they pushed them back a bit. And then daylight came and the Marines and they were in the jungles. And Edson knew there were 3,000. He only knew about six or 700 attack. He thought, well, they're coming back tonight. So he was, he, his line was kind of like that and it was refused a bit and he had three lines. And he said, if the Japanese attack would All they got they're going to cut my two companies um um cut them out or surround them so what he did he moved his front line back to his second line he had three lines moved back to the second line about 400 yards that opened up about 150 yards if you see my videos you'll see about 150 yards of open terrain and then the marines had brought their artillery up mean, their artillery was like a real dominating factor that was one of the reasons the Japanese attacked it, not to try to lessen the Marines firepower, but it didn't work. Um, so they brought 75 millimeter battery up had 105 mil, uh, 105s by the airfield and they were ready to go. And they pre-registered all the fires, all the all the, the sites, everything was pre-registered. They were waiting for the Japanese the second night. So at that stage, Marine Raiders had the f- first Marine paratroopers attached to them, the form one battalion, because they were pretty much decimated. they lost a lot of casualties. Gavutu, the pair, the pair of guys, but they say four of them in one battalion, about 800 guys all up. So, second night, the Japanese attacked with two battalions straight up, um, and they did multiple assaults. Their third battalion was out of the fight, almost the whole fight. I think they committed maybe one company, maybe two companies of that. But once again, Kawaguchi, he didn't have all his, all his three battalions ready to go. Yeah, he was stuck and in the, the jungle
0: the whole time.
1: <laughs> Oh yeah, it was very frustrating for he's just most he's been in his life. So they attacked piecemeal and they did multiple assaults. The Marines finally moved back to the last uh, hill two, Edson's command post and they formed a the ring around that. And, then, and you know the artillery was just smashing the Japanese, the Marines grenades, the Marines you know holding their because um, they were raiders know they, they, they were pretty good troops so they were holding the ground. They, they held they barely held but they held when daylight came. Well the Japanese diversionary attacks, they had one, Um, With the Kuma Battalion, you know, they attacked across a a field at the Overland Trail, and they were basically stopped. Um, The next day, the Marines, just the most tanked tanked, um, casualties they had in the the campaign, the Marines took a tank platoon. I think they had six, six, including the lieutenant uh, command tank, attacked across the field, unsupported by infantry. The Japanese had some 47 and 37 millimeter anti-tank guns took out two tanks very quickly and another Marine tank dropped into the Teneru river and they all drowned. So they had Marines lost three tanks real quick in that campaign in that bit. But then the other one was attack on um, L company of three, five, third battalion, fifth Marine L company Ridge. So anyone's ever been there. It's where the golf course is now. So they attacked there, Colonel Oka. And once again, they attacked up a Ridge and they were, they were um, beaten back quite quickly too. So all three assaults, all three were, were failures. And then Kawaguchi, instead of going back to Tabu Point, he had to go back the other way. So he went back to the Metanica, which is out to the west, and without no supplies or any food. And he lost a lot of guys in the jungle. Yeah, um, it was
0: a bad yeah. one. They had to pick up the wounded. They left all their equipment because they were starving to death, and they were getting picked off a bit too.
1: Well, I think um, about six to 700 Japanese died um, at Bloody Ridge. You know how many died in the jungle? You know, Marines had about 150 casualties. And, in fact, it was the closest, you know, the great historian Richard Frank, Guadalcanal um, historian, said this is probably the closest, in his opinion, that the battle the Marines ever came to losing in the battle. Because if they would have pushed through with thousands of um, Japanese and took the airfield, once the Marines lost the airfield, then it would have been hard to, you know. Especially
0: uh, given the naval battles that happened after, because it was swinging – things were swinging in the ocean after this one, and – Depending how the Japanese even did with that, consolidating the Solomon Islands could have been a real an opportunity. It would have happened, maybe.
1: Yeah. Exactly. But Bloody Ridge um is very um very important in the Pacific campaign because at that stage, that's where the Japanese High Command, in fact, the, the day after Bloody Ridge, Japanese High Command in Tokyo had an emergency meeting and they worked out that okay, the Marines are here to stay. Um, there's probably more than we anticipated and the Americans have kind of like drew a line in the sand and said, we're going to be fighting for this island. So the Japanese couldn't maintain two um, main thrusts at that stage, one being PNG or uh, Papua New Guinea and the other one being Guaya Canal. So what they did at that time, they said, Papua New Guinea and Port Mores is not our main objective anymore. Our main objective will be Guaya Canal. So any resources, any supplies, any reinforcements we have going into PNG with the Port Mores and the Kokoda, everything now goes to Guadalcanal. And they told the South Seas commander on the Kokoda, who could actually see the lights of Port Mores, I mean, they were pretty decimated at that stage, and they were waiting for the 35th Brigade, which just got wiped out, basically, in Guadalcanal, to reinforce them. So they told that commander, all right, withdraw and hold in place as best you can. As soon as we wipe these Americans out of Guadalcanal, we will send all our reinforcements to you. But then that gave the Australians, especially when they're getting their uh, regular forces back, enough time to regroup and to to push back over the Kokoda. And then um, there's a big what if. What if, you know, there was 40, almost 40,000 Japanese was was pumped into Guadalcanal. You know, what if they had been pumped into PNG? You know, they would probably took Port Moresby. I don't know. It's a big what if, a lot of what ifs. But that was a big, that's why Bloody Ridge is a very important battle, not alone, just for Guadalcanal, but for the, um, Dakota campaign at the same time, it affected but quite a bit. Japanese um, second
0: man said, this is now going to be a decisive battle. Guadalcanal is important. Changed a lot.
1: Yeah, it did. So you can see I probably don't know how long we went, but I, I you know, but then the cat, I like the, the cat got bored. He ran off Now we're not playing with him. Um, so that's, you can see, I could go off in different little tracks, um, the cover each in detail. Um, so th- yeah. that's, that's, that's Alligator Creek and Bloody Ridge. So I took them up at the Marines there at the stage now. So it's September the, the 14th or 15th at the end of Bloody Ridge. And the first big resupply the Marines had came in September the 18th. It was a major reinforcement of supply, and it brought in a very, very uh, fresh and, and very good unit, which is the 7th Marine Regiment. So the whole division was, a, was entirely um, together. And it also gave Vandegrift. A chance, fresh troops, he could, um, I guess, um, garrison or man his uh, perimeter 360. And plus, it gave him uh, room to do the, go on the offensive a bit. So, he knew there was a lot of, a few Japanese near the Matanikau River, which was a few miles to the west. And he wanted to wipe those guys out and push them back. He wanted to keep the Japanese way away from Matanikau and uh, to, to uh, preserve the airfield. So it it gave me a chance. This is when Chesty Puller and the rest of them landed on 17th of um, August. And the poor paramount, but the depleted parachute battalion at that stage, as soon as the 7th Marines landed on the 18th, they put the battalion parachute guys on those same transports on the way out. I think they were down like 25% of the original force. But the Raiders were still there, you know, and they thought they were going to go away with the power but they still you know, they still had things in store for the Raiders unfortunately for those guys.
0: And it got a lot scarier with the losses from the Navy <laughs> the, Oh yeah, yeah then A lot the of big naval, surprises
1: well, Naval campaigns, you know, you had seven major naval, naval battles around Guadalcanal Everybody
0: everybody focuses on, uh, you know, Midway, but just alone in the Solomon Islands, the naval battles are extremely intense, and then later on in history, you got Letty Gulf, which is the by far the craziest <laughs> naval battle
1: yeah. We talk about the naval aviators too. You know, uh, some people say the naval aviators of the Japanese were destroyed at Midway, and no, nowhere close. The six-month campaign in Solomon Islands destroyed the the, yeah. the Japanese naval. And it, I forgot it was almost six hundred something planes the Japanese lost in the Guadalcanal campaign, it's, it's and, and most of its crews too, it's very, very experienced naval crews. Because
0: yeah. you would say that the Japanese had a tactical victory when they took out uh, the USS Wasp or or saratoga and stuff but in essence they had lost so much of their veteran aviators that couldn't be replaced and the americans were just pumping out every year entire fleets and trained personnel so japanese were just getting dwindled down
1: no exactly exactly and that was you know the battle of attrition that was what the guarda canal was attrition campaign and you know we're only up to september so i know you guys about to cover guarda canal too and you're going a lot more detail especially about the naval you know and in guarda canal Canal was the first time you had a naval, air, and land campaign at such a large scale in military history. Yeah, you know, simultaneously at, at once. It was the first time in especially U.S. military history where you had um, the forces working together. Look at the Cactus Air Force. It's a, you know some it's, it's a classic. On, we had naval, um, U.S. Army at that stage, one Air Force, but U.S. Army Air Force and and Marine aviators fighting together, and, and you know a hybrid unit was fought. Quite Well, together.
0: Yeah, well, the Americans, the army and the Navy fought well together. The Japanese did a good job of fighting each other. Yes, <laughs> oh, exactly.
1: Well, I mean, Legendary. Americans, had, I mean, the allies, the uh, U.S. had that too, especially, the, you know, the, the high command. I wouldn't say the lower command, but the high command fought each other. And just a bit of a, well, I'm thinking about it too. The U.S. Army was at Guadalcanal. In fact, there was more U.S. Army at Guadalcanal than U.S. Marines in the end, but the U.S. Army didn't really come in until October. And really, really, you know, obviously they set the stage in, in December, January in the big campaigns around there when the Japanese did finally go on the defensive. You know, the know, Thin Red Line, and all that the movies depict.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen the Thin Red Line in so long. Oh
1: my god! Oh, don't don't get me started on The part where the um it depicts uh, it's supposed to depict where Charles Davis earned a Medal of Honor, you know, attacking a bunker and an actor in the in the modern, they've made like two movies, at Island. the modern one with John Cusack. He's plays, loosely plays uh, Captain Davis. Yeah, That's probably the most pres- perfectly preserved battlefield on Guadalcanal. It's called the Galloping Horse Battlefield. No one lives on it. it was, I think one hut. But anyway, I could, I could talk forever, so I think we're getting on a bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, this has been a great episode. I think we have to do this again soon.
1: Yeah, well, like I said, we're up to September to seventeenth or eighteenth.
0: Yeah, we can cover. Uh, well, I mean, I'll leave it up to you and your decisions. What you like, uh, what you're interested the most in. But uh, certainly, still a lot to be said about Guadalcanal. Still got the fight for Henderson Field that's going to be raging on, and uh, the starvation of the Japanese until they finally leave.
1: Yeah, the next big big battle is the Battle of Henderson Field. That's the, that's the last Japanese offensive, I think, in the whole Pacific War. Yeah, Battle of Henderson Field in October. Then you have the, the Americans attacking in Mount Austin fights in January, February.
0: That one's not talked about as much.
1: No, because everyone thinks, not everyone, like I say everyone, I don't mean everyone, but a lot of people, you know, the popular, I guess, history of Guadalcanal is the Marines are there. After the first Marine division left and after four months, that was it. But, you yep. know, second Marine division, a lot of people don't even know the second Marine division was there. Second Marine division fought in, you know, in entirety
0: it, it shoots to Palo real quick when it comes to even most books you read, it uh, shoots right to Palo and goes from there. Well, thank you so much uh, for this interview. And if you like, uh, please tell the audience again, you know, more about your YouTube channel so they know where to check out your stuff.
1: Yeah, it's um, maybe you'll put it in the link or, or not link. Um, yeah. it's, it's called Guadalcanal. Walking a battlefield. And it's on YouTube. It's Squad Canal Walking a Battlefield. And the Facebook's the same one. And at this stage, I think I have like 38 videos. And I'm about to release the Getchy Patrol. So if you want to know about the Getchy Patrol mm-hmm. in in detail, I can um, I've almost got that ready to release. I'll probably be recording it tomorrow, the next day. I've got it, in all the slides and things ready to go. And a lot of then and now photos. I've got some photos of the Getcha area from the 18th of April. Or sorry, 18th of August, you know, the the a few days after it actually occurred when the Marines went in after these guys. So, I'm about to do that one. I just did Lima Company Ridge, I just talked about there the versionary attack. I did both the versionary attacks, and I think I got three videos just on Bloody Ridge itself. And I covered the mail of honor ones, the like Barcelona position, which is uh, the most popular one. Yeah, Page. Well, yeah, Barcelona That's
0: is going to be the all star of every man.
1: Yeah, so I'm go down into the positions where he earned his medal of honor. And we'll talk a bit about Barcelona there. But yeah, that's, that's where you can find it. Just Guadalcanal walking a battlefield.
0: Perfect. So go check him out, everybody. And, uh, well, this has been the Pacific war podcast week by week, uh, over and out. And here is part two to conclude Guadalcanal all right uh, welcome back to the pacific war podcast week by week i'm your dutiful host craig watson and i am joined yet again by mr dave holland how are you doing today
1: yeah not too bad craig thanks again for letting me um to come on your show so it's a it's an honor and it's always good to talk about guadalcanal
0: and uh for those who probably haven't seen the first episode do you want to say just a little bit about yourself before we begin
1: Uh, Yes, I'm I'm currently living in Australia. Well, I'm permanently living in Australia, but I'm originally from the U.S. Um, I was in U.S. Marines for eight years. Um, And due to my work with the Australian government, um, I got to live on Guadalcanal for a number of years. I left um, there recently in 2020. Um, And I'm waiting to go back. But um, during my time there, I walked the battlefields quite a lot. did a lot of research and um, filmed my adventures and travel, so to speak. And I led a lot of tour groups when I was there. So, yeah, so I've been studying Guadalcanal for a number of years now.
0: And you have quite an interesting YouTube channel. I don't think many people do exactly what you do. You want to go and say a little bit more about that?
1: Oh, yes. Um, my YouTube channel is called Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield. I also have a, um, a company, I guess you could say, uh, Facebook. Uh, channel or Facebook page called the same Guadalcanal walking the battlefield. So my videos I, was, I made for people who would never actually go to the battlefield itself or those who's went on the week long tour groups um, and didn't go off the beaten path, so to speak, and stay to the, the I guess, the itinerary. And it allowed me to uh, drill down deep into some um, little known uh, areas of the battlefield. So, um, I made those for the people who would never, ever get a chance to go there or very um, reluctantly and didn't hit the, the main spots. So also to my Facebook page, um, I probably updated every one or two days. Um, I try to put original source material on there, um, stuff that you probably never seen on other sites and a lot of then and now photos, too. So a lot of good Guadalcanal information on there.
0: Excellent. And uh, just to tell members of the audience who may have not have seen the, uh, well, I guess we call it the first part of this, uh, two-parter, we'll call it. You had started to explain to us exactly what Operation Watchtower or Guadalcanal Campaign exactly was, why we even have a Guadalcanal Campaign. And uh, you went into great depth about the Battle of Alligator Creek and the Battle of Edson's Ridge. And that's pretty much where we left off, but there's a lot more to the story as uh, well, we both know.
1: Yeah, there's a lot more to the Guadalcanal campaign. I mean, it's a six month long campaign and you, know, you can make a, a, mini, a lot of mini series, sort of speak out of it, you know, um, focusing on the air, land and naval engagements, such a large um, aspect in the war. <clears throat> it played a, a major part in the Pacific war. So um, today's, I'll mainly speak about the land campaign. Um, I will, I guess, touch base a little bit on the naval parts of it when it's uh, very relevant to the land campaign. And you got to remember during all this, I'm talking today, there was up in the air, there was ongoing um, air battles at the same time. So, yeah, it had it, it, had it all go out of the canal. So, basically, at uh, my last podcast, or our last podcast, we ended up at the um, Battle of Bloody Ridge, which is, uh, I think, the date. I think we ended up on the 15th of September. So that, that last week or two in September is um, quite important in the Guadalcanal campaign for the Marines and for the Japanese. <clears throat> so for the Japanese, after the Battle of Bloody Ridge, um, the Japanese high command had an emergency meeting. And at the same time, the Japanese, they were fighting on Guadalcanal. At the same time, they were fighting in Papua New Guinea um, over the Kokoda uh, track. They had landed at Buna and Gona in the northeast part of um, Uh, Papua New Guinea, and they were attacking over the the track toward Port Moresby to take Port Moresby. So that was, um, that campaign was uh, full and and running at the the same time. So that was their main objective in in the Southwest, uh, or sorry, the South Pacific, was Port Moresby. So after um, uh, Kawagachi in the 35th um, Brigade was defeated at Bloody Ridge, the Japanese high command decided, okay, what we'll do is we'll make Guadalcanal our main effort, so we can't run two efforts at the same time with PNG and Guadalcanal. So Guadalcanal will be our main effort. We will, um, orders was issued to the South Seas Detachment at the time, so they were the Japanese fighting on the Dakota track to cease all offensive operations, to basically hold in place and await for further reinforcements and limited amount of supply once Guadalcanal was handled. So all the the, uh, reinforcements and all the major supply, was sent into um, Guadalcanal. So that was a, a major major turning point, especially for the Australians who were fighting in PNG, the Battle of Bloody Ridge. Um, it also for the Marines at the same time on September 18th was their first big resupply. I mean, that had limited resupplies um, by fast transports and some, um, and some small tran- um, destroyers, so to speak, to unload limited amount of supplies. Because I think if you remember, we spoke about in the last podcast, after um, the U.S. Navy pulled out on the 9th of August, uh, the Marines were left roughly for about two weeks with hardly any, any supply at all, just what they landed with. But this September the 18th arrival, um, uh, there's a lot of supplies on there, and also, um, more importantly, was the 7th Marine Regiment, or the 7th Marines, as, as the Marines called them. So they arrived and with a battery of uh, artillery and also a company of tanks. It was roughly about 4,000 Marines. These guys, the 7th Marines were uh, a part of the 1st Marine Division because the division has three regiments, three infantry regiments and a, an artillery regiment. Well, the 7th Marines at the beginning of the war when the Japanese were attacking to the, the South Pacific, um, like Fiji, Samoa, New Caledonia was, was um, I guess, threatened. So what the Americans did, they sent a number of troops out to garrison these islands. And one of the islands they garrisoned was Samoa. So they sent the 7th Marines out, so they fleshed out the regiment with some of the best NCOs and officers, uh, the best equipment they had at the time, um, attached a battery of, or sorry, a battalion of artillery to them and a company of tanks and sent them to Samoa. And they, um, they were known as the 3rd Marine Provisional Brigade. So they thought they were gonna be the first ones to fight, but uh, ironically, um, the 1st Marine Division landed on the 7th of August in Guadalcanal without them. So some of the, the 7th Marines had some of the legends in the Marine Corps, especially legends of Guadalcanal later, uh, such as Chesty Puller, H.H. H. H. um Mitchell Page, John Batsalone, a lot of senior NCOs and officers in there. So they were, they were considered like a, a very, um, crack unit, so to speak. So Vandegrift, the um, division commander was um, very happy, and these guys are very well welcomed. So they arrived and that allowed Vandegrift to form a 360 degree perimeter, where before, if you remember when we spoke about last podcast, they had a horseshoe shaped perimeter and he couldn't really um, man their southern line, so to speak, because the, the main threats were to the front and to the flanks. And that's when the Japanese attacked on Bloody Ridge. But, um, so that allowed him to form a 360 degree, but also allowed um, 360 degree perimeter, but also allowed the Marines to have a fresh unit to conduct some limited offensive operations to try to go after the Japanese to push them back. Also at the same time, the Marines had a number of uh, promotions um, to some of their lieutenant colonels to colonels, so they had an excess amount of colonels. So that allowed the, um, division commander to get rid of some of his, I guess, less aggressive and older um, colonels, which he did. But in, in doing that, he uh, promoted some of his more younger and aggressive uh, leaders up to higher positions. And one in particular was Red Mike Edson, who was the um, Lieutenant Colonel before, Oh, sorry, he was a Colonel before, but he was um, the um, battalion commander, of the first Raider battalion at Bloody Ridge, but he was very aggressive. And um, he was given command of the 5th Marine Regiment. So once Van de Griff had these uh, units he could do some limited offensive with, he knew the remnants of the Japanese They attacked at Bloody Ridge and also some of the guys who were still there from the very beginning, some of the construction crews and some of the security elements were around the Matanakau River. So the Matanakau River is probably about, I'd say, five to eight miles, depends on which part of uh, Henderson Field you you do the measurement from the five to eight miles from Henderson Field to the west. It's so a Matanikau. Was a major river. Um, you couldn't really ford it unless you forded a couple of points. But Van wanted the Japanese because they were concentrating in area. He wanted them to be pushed way past them, and that way that would, um, I guess, limit the Japanese uh, advancements to Henderson Field. And, and push them way back, give the Marines a bit of breathing room. So what did he wanted to do, he took two of his best battalions at the time, so he had to put the 1st the Raider Battalion and the 1st Battalion at the, at the 7th Marines, and um, they were considered his, some of his best troops. And the poor Raiders, I mean, they'd been fighting at Tulagi and Tazaboko and had a major battle at Bloody Ridge. Uh, they, these guys didn't get much rest, so they put them in a, a coconut grove, they called them, gave them a, a few days rest, then they put them back on the um, – uh, offensive sort of speak. So the first offensive they planned, um, they was take the first battalion, the 7th Marines, and their battalion commander was probably the most famous Marine of all time, and most decorated Marine of all time, uh Lewis Chesty Puller. Puller was known to be a very aggressive and a very and an upfront combat leader who would go after the enemy. So the plan was um on the 23rd, sorry, yeah, the 23rd 20- 23rd of September, um, the 1st Battalion and the 7th Marines were gonna go on the northern slopes of Mount Austin. Well, Mount Austin is not too far from, from Bloody Ridge, but they were gonna go on the east-west trail, uh, it was called. So the Japanese had an east-west trail and that was the trail they, they used to advance from, from a, the Matanakau River. And plus it was the, re- um, I guess, track that um, Kawaguchi and his unit had, had retreated from after Bloody Ridge. So the Marines didn't know exactly where they were at. So they sent Puller to do a reconnaissance and force on the east-west track, heading to the west to Matanical. At the same time, the first Marine Raiders, or the first Raider Battalion was going to go down the coastal track or the government track. So the government track was a, was a pre-war track that used to service all the coconut plantations. So it, as, as the name implies, it basically went on a coastal track. It was a, a little, um, um, Copper Cart Road, as some of the Marines called it. And it wasn't a, a, a great sealed road or anything like that. It was just a dirt trail. Um, they could move up and down through. So they was going to, uh, the first raiders were going to walk, I guess, go kind of in parallel with the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines. So the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, on the 24th, they were moving. And they hit uh, uh, some Japanese pickets on the slopes. And they pushed their pickets back. And the... Um, the Japanese had a, a series of cooking fires and puller was about a third or fourth man back in the line. Cause he was leading from the front. And he, he bent down to sample some of the, the Japanese rice. And I think Craig, you mentioned before how the Japanese used to carry their the yeah. rations. Yeah. So, I'll so, mention yeah. to
0: the audience. Uh, it, it's a bit of an odd thing to think about because, you know, as they say, sometimes it's the, the, the unsexy part of uh, war is the logistics and, for the Japanese compared to the, uh, the American forces on the islands, the Americans had ready to eat rations like sea uh, rations or K rations, but for the Japanese, they had more or less, they would lug these bags of rice on their backs with various other things like, uh, some dried fruits and some fish if they're lucky. But this meant that at nighttime or whenever they had to eat, they actually had to boil the rice and this gave away your position. Like you said, with the, uh, it's like a smoke signal. And for snipers, this was a pretty crucial, uh, Flaw in planning and it would lead to a lot of problems for the Japanese. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but and um yeah, you will see that later we'll talk about how uh, Guarda Canal became known as Starvation Island for the Japanese.
0: Oh, yeah. So the rations,
1: they didn't have a lot of rations even to, to start with. And um I guess very, I guess had the perishable rations too, not like the Marines with the where they get sea to, to learn
0: from the Japanese accounts, you get to really learn about what you can eat when you can find just about nothing on an island.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, they ate the lizards and the and the spiders and the, and and everything on Guadalcanal. I think you know, there's there's all kind of little animals that run around through there. Um, there's not many snakes on Guadalcanal. You know, you read some of these stories. Oh, you know the poisonous snakes on Guadalcanal. I mean, I was there. The Japanese ate them all. <laughs> oh yeah, that's probably, probably what happened. They they exterminated them. They put them in extinction. There are some snakes on the island of Guadalcanal, but they're a little tree. Boas or something—they're like little boa snakes, little tiny ones, but not poisonous at all. I think in the Solomon Islands, there's only one variety of poisonous snakes and that's a sea snake. Oof. um Yeah, but there's—I think the, the mosquitoes make up for it. I don't know that they're, oh, they're yeah. still there, swarms. But um, but anyway, the <clears throat> puller had bent down to sample some of this rice, and the Japanese had brought up some of their um, machine guns at the time. So what did the Marines had ran into—they ran into some of the elements of Colonel Oka, who was a japanese regimental commander the 124th regiment and colonel oka you'll find out just he's always comes he's, he's coming in and out of the guadalcanal campaign all the time you know and he actually lived through the guadalcanal campaign but it's almost every fight the marines had for the next two or three months oka was involved somehow and it wasn't in in his favor so to speak he was you know kind of drew the unlucky straw but anyway that was oka's guys and they would um the ones that really wasn't engaged before so much in Bloody Ridge. I mean, they were in, involved in the diversionary attack. Um, I think I mentioned, um, but they, they didn't do much fighting, so they were fairly fresh. Anyway, they brought up a, a company of those guys and set the machine guns up, and they started hitting um, first-hand seven Marines pretty hard. But in the ensuing firefight, a number of Marines died. They pushed the Japanese back, and they had about 25 casualties. So they stopped for the night. They pulled a radio back to division headquarters, he says, look, I've got a number of casualties. I need some stretchers. Um, division commander said, are you, can you continue on? he goes, go, yes, if you send me some more guys. So they sent the 2nd Battalion of the 5th Marines, which were under a captain at the time, temporary command. So they sent two five, as they known it, known as, uh, up to Puller and his battalion with stretchers. So Puller sent back two rifle companies um, carrying his 25 wounded, which it would take two rifle companies to take them back because, once again, they, they didn't have any helicopters in those days, and there's no roads, no Jeeps, nothing like that, so they had to hand carry them over this tough terrain and also provide security. So it, it would took taking at least 300 guys to probably take those 25 back safely. So Puller still had one rifle company, and he had another battalion. So he continued on the next day. So they went down into the east-west track. It goes in a place called the Valley, and it goes to the um, east bank the of the Tannical River. Now, just a side note, uh, the Valley was later known in another um, Battle of Matanical. Um, There was a war correspondent named John Hershey, and he wrote a small book, about 60 pages, I think, 70 pages. It was called The Valley. or into The Valley. I think it's maybe The Valley, but it's John Hershey. And it's a good um, depiction of, of a marine rifle company. He's with them when they go under fire going down in that valley. So that's a quite interesting book if you one of your um, listeners want to. To see that one's called John Hershey into the valley or the valley, but anyway, they moved down the valley. They went down the um the um, east bank of the Matanikau, and they passed a spot known as the one log bridge, Nippon Bridge, or the Japanese had or uh, Japanese one log bridge, a Nippon Bridge, it was known to the Marines. So it was a, I've never seen a photo of it. I know exactly where this site is. I mean, I've visited a number of times, but um, from this pictures of it it was either one or, or potentially two logs together with a, with a handrail very crude bridge over the uh, i guess a um a point of the metanical that's easily crossed um a narrow part but anyway they, they passed it didn't see any japanese and they went into the mouth of metanical and they were receiving a bit of a mortar fire at the time but they tried to push across the mouth of metanical and they sent one platoon over and they got hit pretty hard machine gun fire. But division, the radio back division thought that, that um, the Marines had actually made it to the other side. So they did a, um, a guy called Twining, who was the operation officer. He did a, a plan on the fly, so to speak. And they sent, so the Raiders, first Raiders were, were getting on the scene at this time. So they had two battalions there and they, they um, decided to do a plan to, to eliminate these Japanese because the Marines intelligence, you know, just like the Japanese intelligence failed a number of times in the campaign. So the Marines thought they only had about three, three to four hundred Japanese in that whole area. And they were very um, disorganized and, you know, they've been easily to be pushed over. But what the Marines didn't know, the Japanese had landed a fresh regiment, the fourth um, Japanese regiment, the 2nd Sendai Division. So they were fresh troops, you know, was probably about um, almost two thousand, two 000 to three thousand of them over there, fresh troops. So um, they sent Edson up, 5th Marine um, Regimental Commander, to take charge of the overall um, operation. So the plan was the next day they were going to take 2-5 under Puller and push across the mouth of the in a holding action to to pin the Japanese at the the mouth of the And at the same time, they were going to send the 1st Raider Battalion about 2,000 yards back down the... A Bank of Tanaka and cross at the Japanese one log bridge, and then they were going to flank the, the village. Then it, uh, they also had the two rifle companies that they, uh, the 1st Battalion 7th Marines had sent back to the perimeter with those wounded, um, they were going to throw them in, into some landing craft. and They were going to land uh, slightly west of Point Cruz, which is a little peninsula that, that juts out there. And they were going to come in from behind the Japanese. So they were going to pin the Japanese and destroy them. So that was the overall plan. So they started pushing um, platoons across the mouth of Botanical, and they were getting hit pretty hard. Um, The Raiders were moving up to the One Law Bridge, but unknowns to the Marines, the night before the Japanese had pushed a reinforced uh, platoon across um, uh, the river, and they were um, in a nice tight defensive position. And if you go to that position to the day, you can see that's, you know, it's a good bottleneck, you know, it's straight up cliff on the left-hand side. And, you know, there's only about, I'd say less than hundred meters between the river and the the cliff face. So, and it's right before you get to the One Law Bridge. So they had a great position there. So the Raiders are moving up. And I think I I, I did discuss him in the last um, episode. There's a guy called Ken Bailey. He was a major at that time. He was executive officer of the first battalion, a Raider battalion. So Bailey was a very, um, uh, instrumental leader. You know, they looked up to him, big fella, um, always led from the front. a lot of these uh, Marine officers, especially Raider officers did. So he's moving up. They started hitting, getting machine gun fire. So he's standing up, trying to find out where the machine gun fire is coming from. And the, um, the firsthand account said there was a machine gun burst. that got him in the face and the chest and killed him instantly. So they're stuck there. Um, the, the battalion commander, who was Lieutenant Colonel um, Sam Griffin, he came up, seen his executive officer dead, became very um, mad, as you can imagine, and decided they needed to flank these Japanese, or tried to flank the Japanese. So he took a unit and tried to flank the Japanese. But, you know, I've, I've been to that spot, and you look at it, and the think there's no way in the world you get up these cliffs. So they tried, and uh, he ended up getting shot in the shoulder and severely wounded, and the attack stopped. So it's one of the few times the Raiders were ever stopped in the Pacific war it was at it that a time there. But it, or, um, Bailey, I think I mentioned in the last episode, he'd earned a Medal of Honor. He, he, he was nominated and he later received a Medal of Honor posthumously. He, um, he didn't even know he ever received it for the Battle of Bloody Ridge less than two weeks earlier. So it was a major um, blow for the Raiders. Anyway, the Raiders were stuck there. 2-5 was stuck. So, at the same time, all this was occurring, it was a major Japanese air raid at the airfield. And the, the communications were, were distorted. So, just like the fog of war happens, a lot of um, engagements such as this, um, the division command thought the Marines were across the river, the raiders were across. So, that was, gave them the green light to send their amphibious uh, force, or the 17, around in the in run. So, they sent these guys in. They threw them on the boats real quick and they landed. And when they landed, they landed at, um, just west of point Cruz. So any of you, you viewers ever been, or sorry, any of your listeners ever been to Guadalcanal honey, are is the capital city and that's, you know, built straight on this battlefield. And if they ever stay at the, you know, the King soul hotel or the, um, a couple of other big hotels there. Now it's basically on the same ground. These guys landed and the, um, um, Like the police stations and all that is roughly where this area these guys fought over. So they landed, and they went up to the nearest high point, which is Hill 84. And they noticed they were going through bivouacs, and they were going through the Japanese bivouacs. They quickly evacuated. was watching them. So they went up to the top. Executive officer was a guy named um, Major Ortho Rogers. So he called his two company commanders together in a command group, and a mortar hit right in the command group and killed him instantly and, and severely wounded another one. So the fight was on, the Japanese had them pinned down. So Puller um, was trying to tell Edson, he goes, look, my guys are there, we need to get them out. So Edson was trying to formulate a plan, trying to say, okay, let's see if we can work this out. And Puller being Puller, was a bit rash and says, no, you're not gonna leave my guys to to suffer or to die. So he, he jumped in a small boat and he went out to the USS Monson, which was a four stacker destroyer, which was providing covering fire back at Kukum. So he jumps on that, gets, uh, a guy called Coast Guardman um, Douglas munro who was the leader of the landing craft, and they went back. And um, in their haste, the Marines forgot the radio, so they're using the semi-four flags. They jumped, a guy called Racebrook, Sergeant Racebrook, he jumped up on the, um, the ridge under Japanese fire and started uh, doing a signal flagging to Puller, who was on the, on the destroyer. So they basically started laying down a quarter of fire, five inches in the left and right, to allow the Marines to evacuate. So Marines evacuated and Douglas Monroe, this is the only time um, uh, a U.S. Coast Guard earned a Medal of Honor. And all the U.S. Coast Guards, and if you speak them to, to them to this day, they know about Monroe. Um, so Monroe, his front, his gunner and the lead, lead of his ship was hit and wounded. So he jumped on a machine gun in the bow of the boat in the front of the boat, and it was a Lewis gun. and at the time, the Marines were evacuating. One of the Marines, um, one of the landing craft was hung up on a sandbar. They were trying to, they hooked up some cables trying to pull it off. So Monroe put his boat between that boat and the Japanese to provide and fire. And then when the boat was freed, Monroe was basically hitting the head with a machine gun fire. And um, he later died um, very shortly after that. And um, he was nominated in for, the, for the Medal of Honor. So the Marines evacuated, got everyone out. And it was the only time in the Guadalcanal campaign the Marines actually suffered a defeat and gave the Japanese a little bit of a, a I guess, a pep up so sort to of speak, and motivated. So that was known as the second battle of the Matanikau. So Marines moved back to the perimeter um, and kind of licked their wounds, but they knew there was a lot of Japanese there and they wanted to push them out. So, um, This leads up to the third battle of the Metanical. The third battle of the happened from the 7th to the 9th of October. So it was basically the same plan. Um, But this time, it was a bit more thought out with intelligence, more artillery support. Um, They were going to use five battalions, and it was the largest attack the Marines had in their campaign to that day. So um, the 5th Marines were going to, once again, they were going to attack at the mouth of Matanica and hold the Japanese, and then there were three battalions of the Seventh Marines were going to cross singly cross this one log bridge. That, that, that one log bridge got a lot of work out during the whole whole campaign. I tell you that, with the Japanese and Marines going back and forth across it, but they were going to move across, and then there was there's a series of three big ridges there in Guadalcanal, and one battalion was going down one ridge. Second Ridge and Third Ridge. Each battalion was going to take a ridge, and then they were basically um, flanked the, the um, Japanese and destroy them. So, at the same time, the Japanese had decided to do a major offensive at Guadalcanal. So, they started bringing in elements of the second Japanese Sendai Division to, to be their main offensive force. So, the elements of those guys started landing. So, the Japanese knew that they were going to be bringing heavy artillery and tanks later in on in October. So what they wanted to do was form a beachhead on the east bank of the Metanical. And that would be a good jumping off point for their attack because they knew the only place you could bring tanks or tanks across Metanical is at that mouth, because that's where the coastal track, it went across the mouth of Metanical. Kind of like Alligator Creek, you know, the only place you could cross is a sandbar, you know, at certain times of the day, then you could cross them the sandbar and it was like a natural bridge, but that's the only place the Japanese could cross with the tanks there. And they knew if they could cross it and have a staging point, a semi-point on the other side of the river, then they could just shoot straight down the coastal track, straight into Henderson field basically, and give Marines a hard time. So they were very prepared to, to hold the Metanical. So the Marines had that same idea, you know, they wanted to make sure the Japanese was way away from the Matanical. So the Marines beat the Japanese to the point, so to speak. Um, and they started their offensive. Now, when the Marines moved up, they thought the Japanese, all the Japanese, were on the uh, west bank of Botanical, But what the Japanese had done, they'd put a, a reinforced company um, across, and they'd dug in um, about four or five hundred yards from the mouth of Botanical. The so these Marine battalions, the Fifth Marines, hit these, hit these guys, and the fight was on. You know, it was a very close quarter. It was jungle, and they you know, they couldn't see each other, so they, you know, they were pinned down, and they were fighting pretty hard. Um, and the poor raiders were promised, okay, we're going to hold you back. The first – we got a big um, convoy coming in and around October the 13th, and you'll be evacuated from the island, so you don't have to do any more fighting. But the overall command, once again, was Edson, and Edson loved his, his raiders, so he asked for a raider company to come up to assist, and then he asked for another company, then most of the raiders came up to assist in that, so the one last fight. So they were, they were pinned down. Um, fighting, fighting, and, and the raiders had actually formed over the mouth of the Tanaka. The Japanese decided to do a breakout that night, and they overran one of the platoons of the raiders and killed like 12 raiders. And uh, most of the Japanese died. They didn't cross the, the mouth, but um, yeah, the raiders got hit pretty hard. Uh, the next morning, the three battalions of the 7th Marines, well, I won't say all 7th, you had two battalions of the 7th and the, the 2nd Marine Regiment, I think if you remember my last last episode, was part of the 2nd Marine Division, but because they didn't have the 7th Marine Regiment initially, the uh, Marine High Command gave the 1st Marine Division the 2nd Marines. So the 1st, 2nd Marines Regiment was actually the first ones to land, you know, and they were the first, you know, they were kind of the last ones to leave, so they, they got it kind of the, the raw end of the stick. But they were garrisoned Tulagi, which is like 20 miles away. They'd brought the, one of their battalions over. It a fresh battalion, so they had the 3rd Battalion, the 2nd Marines involved in this attack. It was under a, a fellow named uh, Colonel Whaling, Bill Whaling, and um, a little side note here about Whaling. Whaling had formed something called the Whaling Group. It was a good idea. So Whaling was in his, his history, you know, he'd fought in, in the Great War, the first World War I, or World War I as a, as a Marine enlisted him. Um he, he did quite well there. And he'd fought through the uh, banana wars in the 20s and 30s in, the, in Haiti, and Nicaragua. So he was a very, um, very experienced woodsman, um, outdoorsman. He was Olympic shooter. I forget which Olympics he was in. Um, so what he had, had done, too, he was executive officer of the 5th Marines, and he had an idea. He went to division commander and uh, chief of staff, and he said, look – that was the days before you had marine reconnaissance or scout snipers and things like that. So they were just doing their own scouting from the infantry platoon. So he said, look, this is jungle. We need some need some good scouts and you know it'd be worth the wait and go. So can I just um I guess go through the battalions and ask them for anyone with, with previous shooting experience, um hunt hunters and woodsmen, and I can put them in a unit, to give them some um some more training and use them as a scouts and snipers for the, for the, um, division. And they said, that's a good idea. So they, he started, um, doing that and they were called the whaling group. And what he would also do, he'd, he'd rotate these guys back to the normal unit so they could share their experience. So it was a good idea. And later in, in the war, um, the Marines formed their scout snipers and reconnaissance unit. So that was a good, good, um, good little, um, I guess, origin from it. But anyway, whaling was, in charge of the whaling group, which is his scout snipers in the 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines. He had um, the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, under Puller, who just had a hard time, you know, two weeks earlier. Then the 2nd Battalion, of the 7th Marines, under another interesting fellow um, called H.H. H. Hanikin. You know, Guadalcanal is like the who's who uh, you know, of, of, the, of the U.S. Marine Corps in World War II. You know, all the legends, you know, was it's all true. together. all in the, yeah, in the first team. Yeah, yeah pretty pretty you think about cool. it, you know if through the war, you know, they, they spread out and went to the other divisions, but you had them all in one little, one unit, so to speak, the first Marine division. It was the who's who, if you look back on it, but, um, Hannikin had earned the Medal of honor. I think it was in Haiti and he had, it's a good story. If you, if you, any of you listeners want to look him up, he'd earned a Medal of honor. He dressed up like the um, local gorilla, like a gorilla penetrated the gorillas leaders camp, and him and another guy assassinated or killed the gorilla leader and ended the, Ended the kind of insurrection at that stage, and then the guerrilla leader replacement, and he um, came in, and he ended up killing him later. Then I think he went to Nicaragua, and there's a guerrilla leader, and he infiltrated his camp there, and um captured him. So <laughs> he was a pretty, pretty, pretty um capable fellow. He earned a battlefield commission, but anyway, it's a bit of a side note. But anyway, he had those three, three units and three good commanders, so they moved out, crossed, and they were going down the ridges, um, and they had the Japanese pin. So they started, um, really, uh, getting into the Japanese and pullers actually battalion called a Japanese, um, battalion of the fourth Japanese regiment, a fresh one in a in place called the ravine. So if you go to Hunter Ari to this day where the parliament house is, if you go not too far from the parliament house, it's a deep ravine and, and uh, the coral ridges and and Guadalcanal to this day, if you see them all the ridges are fairly barren due to the coral I to- I was told. And then in the ravines are uh, thick jungle. So obviously that's in the, with the river or the creeks and stuff going through them. So it's a good place to build. The so Japanese were caught in there and, and Puller started um, calling in his uh, mortar fire on both ends and he had a Japanese trapped and he had a 75 millimeter howitzers. Artillery support was was pinning these Japanese too. And then the Japanese, if you go to this ravine to the state it's straight up and down. So they're trying to get out on the other side and the machine guns um, started taking the Japanese out. And I think Puller, one of his commanders said it was a, a machine made for extermination. That was what that whole, whole episode was. So they got a bit of a payback from you know, two weeks earlier. And um, at this time, uh, the reports, the Marine High Command was receiving reports that Japanese were coming in force you know, I, I think at the time, I mean, I haven't verified it, but I think they had um, access to to magic, which is the you know the code breaker, naval, Japanese naval code breaking. I think there was some, they were getting some intel, basically saying that look, the Japanese are coming in with a lot of reinforcements, so they thought they're going to hit the, the the perimeter, you know, which was lightly manned, so they were they were given an order to withdraw back to the perimeter, but they drew back to the perimeter. In the meantime, I think they were credited with killing like six or seven hundred Japanese um and which put a big um almost decimated whole fourth japanese regiment and it, it knocked the japanese back a bit so they moved back into the perimeter once again so um you got anything you want to add greg i mean i've been yapping away here
0: yeah yeah, of course sorry i just was listening a um
1: okay so around the i think the ninth or eighth, around roughly around this same time The Japanese um, 17th Army commander landed, Hayataki, Lieutenant General Hayataki. He landed and was taking um, personal command of Guadalcanal campaign. So once again, that's another, um, I guess another indication how the Japanese were taking this very, very seriously. Um, So he landed with the 17th Army. You you would know that uh, I think the Japanese, the armies, we say army, it's not like the Western armies at the time. It was more like a core size, I think. Um, their armies were like two two or three divisions. Yeah. Which, you know, in the Western armies at that time, a, a corps was two or three divisions. But anyway, um, Hayataki landed and he formed his um, headquarters at Kukumbona. And that was the, the area where he'd formed. Um, so the Japanese had a major plan going at the time and they were going to, you know, With air, sea, and land, you know, they were really gonna knock these these Americans off Guadalcanal. So, you know, Yamamoto, uh, the naval commander was involved. Um, Massive amount of air was coming to Rabao, or Rabao as some people call it, and they were getting a lot of reinforcements. Because you can remember these, Henderson Field was getting hit almost every day with air raids. Um, Normally around 11 or 12 o'clock, the Marines called it Tojo time. That's, That's how long it took them to fly from Rabao. To hit it, and didn't you know, I could go off sidetrack and talk about the coast watchers, and you know, and how the Marine Wildcats would take forty-five minutes to get up to twenty thousand feet, and yeah, it was, it's good, it's good, um, good study about all that. But um, try not to get sidetracked here. So the Japanese plan was to before they were landing all their troops, mainly in fast destroyers, the Japanese called rat runs and the Marines call Tokyo Express down the slot there in Solomon Islands. The Japanese said, well, we've got these transports so we've got, you know, tanks and heavy artillery and we can't put them on destroyers. So we need to put them on these transports, but they're, they're a bit slow. So the Japanese ruled the night, so to speak, with their naval, naval support and the Marines ruled the day with their air support from Henderson Field. So they knew that they, they couldn't get those transports in at night and get them out the next day or, or vice versa before the marines Air could take them out. So they had to neutralize Henderson Field. So the Japanese Naval High Command come up with a plan. They said, okay, what we'll do is we'll send their battleships down um, and we'll just just obliterate their field with, with just naval um, bombardment. Because you got to remember, the, the Marines were getting hit almost every night by naval bombardment because then when the Japanese would do their rat runs or um, Supply runs with these fast destroyers. Those fast destroyers would drop off, and then on the way out, they'd fire a few rounds into the perimeter, you know, with their five inch rounds. So the Marines getting hit every night with that. So they're getting kind of used to it. So the plan was um, Yamamoto formed the largest naval group um, since Midway. They were going to push out, <clears throat> excuse me, they're going to push out, and then they were going to bombard Henderson Field, neutralize it then they would allow them to unload their transports with, um, without being harassed in the day. They were going to remain off and try to draw the American carriers out. Because once they, they were going to do a major attack and hopefully draw the American carriers out and finish the Mar- car- American carriers once and for all.
0: Because it was, yeah, Momoto's basically his obsession was to have the decisive naval battle and he was looking for it this entire time. And yeah.
1: I guess it it potentially gave them the opportunity because they knew the American carriers had been in the area, you know, and they thought, well, we can draw them out because they're, they're waiting on us. So the plan was to land the second division in full, um, heavy artillery tanks and some more of the elements of the 38th Japanese division. They were going to land. And the plan was they were going to take their tanks. It was a tank company, about 12 tanks and supported by, um, uh, regiment, and they were going to attack starting on the 22nd of October. And they were going to attack across the mouth of the because at that time, the Marines had, had pushed forward two battalions to hold the mouth of the Tanakao to keep the Japanese off balance. So they were going to pin those Marine battalions there, take another Japanese regiment, attack it to, uh, cross at the One Log Bridge, because the Marines, the 2 forward far-deployed battalions, there's a ridge called Kola Ridge to this day. Their, their flank was refused, so to speak. It was open, so they were going to cut those two battalions off. It was kind of like a reverse plan that the Marines had done in the second or the third battle of Matanakau, and the Japanese were going to do it reverse. But at the same time, <clears throat> uh, Murayama, which is the division commander of the 2nd Division, he had ordered his, um, his engineers to start from Kukumbona, which was the 17th Army's headquarters, Go south to southeast and cut a 15 mile um, road. They call it a road; it's more of a trail. Cut a Armor trail, and it was going to go around Mount Austin, go to the um, miles south of the perimeter the Marine perimeter, and then come straight up and attack over Bloody Ridge. They're just going to replicate their their um, attack they did on the um, September with Bloody Ridge. <clears throat> so it's a good plan, you know, and. Um, they were going to pin the Marines, and you know, they knew that southern flank would be lightly held, and they are going to have a whole division, well, about 7,000 Japanese concentrated straight over the ridge, straight into the airfield. <clears throat> so it was a good plan. So they initiated it. They started doing the air raids. And then the night of the 13th, or the day, I'll, I'll backtrack, on the 13th of October, the Marines received another big resupply, and they also the first time the U.S. Army because the U.S. Army had been, you know, the Marines had been thinking the U.S. Army is going to relieve them from almost week one because the Marines are going to land their assault troops. They land, take the island, you know, take the beach, and then the, the Army is going to come garrison. But, you know, the Army never came for a number of reasons. So the first U.S. Army unit started arriving. It was the 164th Infantry Regiment. And these guys were a National Guard unit from the Dakotas. I think maybe Wisconsin too, but definitely from the Dakotas, North and South Dakota big raw bone farm boys, as they were described as. And um, they turned out to be very, very good, good unit. But they'd landed on you know, the 13th of October a, and then the Raiders left on the same transport. You know, they'd, they'd, they'd done their time in hell, so to speak, and, and it served the time and they're on the way out. I think there were only uh, 800 of them landed and there were about 200 effective at the end. They suffered a lot of casualties. Um, so... They had landed on the 13th of October. So that night, the two Japanese battleships had um, come into the off um, Iron Bottom Sound. I think I have to double check, but I think 15 kilometers away, they started pounding the perimeter with 14 inch naval rounds. So in a short time, they fired almost a thousand um, naval rounds. It
0: was incredible. I think you had the
1: yeah, yeah I think was, you had uh, the exact count, like 900 and 37. almost
0: 937 14 thirty-seven fourteen-inch shells, and they run. They ran out of their high-explosive shells. They ended up having to use the uh, the armor-piercing that's used for shooting at ships. In the end, to just keep putting the damage down, it must have been absolutely terrifying. I've read accounts from uh, the Marines that were there, and it was the stuff of nightmares.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I've, um to this day I uh, well, I don't find too many fourteen-inchers, but um, there's one in the um, the place. Their AOD. You know, they're explosive disposal guys. They have like a little outdoor museum. They've got a 14-inch round fired that night there. It was an armor-piercing one, too. and they've they've cut it in half where you can see it, but, yeah, it's an armor-piercing one. But you can imagine armor-piercing ones firing a a shell the same size of a VW bug, you know, a, a car. You know, if that landed beside you, it didn't matter if it exploded or not. That would, that would do some damage to you, especially if you, you know, hit your tent, so to speak. But, yeah, you know, and, then, and basically over that night, they fired all those rounds. And that was, and I think we discussed it before, uh, I can't think of any other place, any other time that Allied soldiers in the whole World War II was, um, underwent this intense, intensive naval um, shelling because you know they, they did it this night and they did it the next two nights too with eight inch and five inches. You know, they fired over a thousand eight, eight inch rounds and five inches round the next night. And I think the five inches and they hit them. So three nights in a row, they got smashed, literally smashed pretty hard. But basically what it is the next day, most of the air, um, Cactus Air Force as it was called, was destroyed. I mean, they had a few um, planes they could put up in the air, but a lot of the air, avgas or aviation fuel was gone. You know, luckily, they'd spread out some of their avgas and they had enough to, to fly a few missions, but they had a basically it decimated them so much. The Japanese, the next day, the Marines said they, they could see the Japanese transports and they could see them offloading in, in full daylight. And they couldn't do anything about it. It was so frustrating for them.
0: Yeah, a lot of them could watch. Uh, they had good vantage points to see the entire thing, and they called it a, a fast run for the Japanese. Yeah, you know, it would be one you of the times few times they'd be able to actually unload, but they they still in the end they would only be able to unload about two-thirds of their uh supplies. They got all the men, but not all the supplies.
1: Yeah, because the Marines and the um yeah, the Marines did put a few planes up and they were still harassing them. I mean, there's you know, once again that's a side side track. We you talk about how you know how Marines cannibalize some of the planes and you know they had a Franken plane or something like that. They caught it, and yeah, it was just some great stories there with the air, air campaign alone. Have, but yeah. yeah I think they yeah, Frankenplane or Frankenstein plane or something they just off well, bits and pieces of a plane and put it together and it did some damage right. it's a good story um so they allowed the them to offload most of their especially all their um, heavy artillery so they were unloaded a lot of a large number of um, 150 millimeter and 100 millimeter heavy artillery you know now, I'll speak about the heavy artillery right now they were, the Marines called them and the army called them pistol Pete. Now some accounts you read, some guys think Pistol Pete was a singular um, cannon, but it wasn't, it was the name given to any artillery, big artillery round that landed in Henderson Field or landed amongst the Marines. I mean, it, well, when you say big artillery round at one stage and 75 millimeter uh, rounds were hitting them around the Marines and they said, oh, that's Pistol Pete, you know? but that was the name synonymous for the, the Japanese heavy artillery. So Japanese heavy artillery landed in, in, in 150 mils, when where the Japanese headquarters was, could strike Henderson Field. The Marines um, couldn't counter battery fire because they had nothing that large to to counter battery fire. They only had the 105 millimeter howitzers. I mean, the 11th Marine Regiment is the the artillery regiment. Um, They had five battalions, but the the fifth battalion was the 155 millimeter, but it was left in New Zealand uh, when the Marines left to to land on Guadalcanal because they didn't have enough um, shipping to take it and its prime movers. So uh, I think the 155s of the Army and the U.S. Marines on the land in late October, early November. So, you know, the, they were, they started smashing Henderson Field too, um, once they got set up. And then, um, so the plan was you st- they had these guys, so they decimated, they unloaded, and they started moving through the jungle. So once again, the Japanese, the, the terrain beat the Japanese. Um, uh, they underestimated the, the terrain. She had seven thousand guys moving through that thick jungle, and you know, to this day, if you go in there, you think, "How in the world could they do it?" And they're carrying all their artillery too. You know, each Japanese soldier had to carry one seventy-five millimeter round.
0: Well, they I they think. carried they carried it for a while, but a lot of them actually ended up having not to carry it.
1: Oh yeah, I mean that's that's you know that's kind of um, you could see why they did it. Um to this day, if you go in and Maryana track of remnants of the trail, you can still find 75 millimeters laying or rounds laying in the jungle on fire, where you can see some private just threw it out of his backpack. You know, you know I remember yeah, go ahead. When
0: you uh, when you read a lot of the accounts from the Japanese side, whether it's Guadalcanal or some of the other islands, there's um it's kind of a theme about it's usually food, it's it's usually starvation that you hear. But another thing that I heard, particularly when it came to this account, when they were carrying the artillery. It's the weight of the equipment the Japanese had. And I don't know if a lot of the viewer uh, listeners know it's a little bit ironic, but if you look at all the armies in world war II, the Japanese were some of the smaller guys, but they had the heaviest equipment. They had the largest bayonets, the heaviest rifle. They had the heaviest ration pack. And then these guys who had to bring this artillery, the pieces of the artillery, they basically, from the accounts I read a lot of them, they couldn't do it. They, after a few, uh, Days marching, they actually had to give it up. So it's yeah, um, yeah. it's just it's another one of those small little details that kind of like Japanese logistics was not uh, not up to par.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've carried in you know, those the same jungles. I've been on parts of the Murramah track, and I've been in jungles elsewhere in the world. But I'm telling you, you, you know, you carrying just a little bit of weight, and you can feel it very quickly. And and they had a lot of bulky items too. I mean, you know, they, they're just stripping apart a whole you know. 70 millimeter howitzer and a 75 millimeter howitzer just amazing what they, they they thought they could achieve but just the whole mentality of them thinking they could do it it's you know you just got to tell your hats off to them for the you it's, know, determination it's, it's, it's the old
0: idea that's insane you know, well the officers in the japanese military used to tell that all the men that while it you know the while the technology was against them, it was the spirit of the, the, the Japanese spirit that would win the day in the end. Yeah. It was the, you know, the tenacity and uh, well, yeah, the kudos, kudos, to them for, for fighting like that, but uh,
1: Ooh, the logistics did quick. pan out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like, said so logistics on Guadalcanal, both, both forces are fighting at the end of the logistic trail. I mean, it's a great study in the, in the, in logistics, you know, the logistics win the win the wars, you know, win campaigns. Yeah. But, but these guys moved through the jungle and they underestimated the jungle. Um, Murayama, the division commander, delayed his attack. It was supposed to go on the 22nd. He delayed it, you know, to the 23rd. So the guys at the mouth of the out of the tanks, they did a probing attack at one stage with a couple of tanks. And they said, this is what the Marines had over there. Then they pulled them back. So they were getting ready. But the Marines on that line, you know, like I said, they had two battalions and a third battalion and the first Marine Regiment and a third battalion and the seventh Marine Regiment. So they were dug in there. And they also had their special weapons, like the 37 millimeters. They had 75-millimeter howitzers on um, half tracks, the M3 half tracks. So they've they've become very, um, very important. And then more importantly, they had four battalions of artillery, 75 millimeters and the 105 millimeters, registered in to the other side of that river. And I read where each gun was given a 50-yard path. I said, this is your, your, you're going to file on this 50-yard strip up and down, up and down. That was they all registered, ready to go. So, they were, they were waiting for the Japanese because they knew that was, that's where the Marines thought where the Japanese were going to hit hit from. So, the Japanese are trying to move through the thick jungle. Marines had no clue they're coming in from the south. You know, they had their, their local scouts, which is Solomon Island scouts. They were very good guys. Uh, they they wouldn't get any intel. Uh, they would not picking them up on the um, the normal scouts so like whaling scouts snipers wouldn't picking them up air cover wouldn't picking them up because the japanese were going through the thick jungle and way to the south would no one expect them to be there so what the marines did they had the seventh marines um, on that line and um they had the first battalion seven marines puller once again and they had hannick two seven they were manning that line that line Marines had a good line there. I mean, you can go there to this day and still see all the, the bunker holes and the barbed wire. It's all still there. Um, unfortunately, farming and, and the encroachment, modern uh, encroachment has taken up a lot of it, but a lot of it's still there. But they dug in quite a bit and had the coconut log bunkers or coconut logs on the overhead. Um, like if you ever see the, the HBO series, the Pacific, uh, Pacific with, with Barcelona, and that's the area where Barcelona was at. Those, those, I guess, for the movie or the series, I made it with the you know, wasn't covered, so you, I guess, you could see the actors, but they were generally covered, um, log bunkers. And they'd cut firing lanes in the jungle, and they had like uh, four foot um, high barbed wire, thick barbed wire, double barbed wire strands in there. Um, so it was a great defensive position. They only could see, I think, Barcelona said he could see 30, it was 30 feet from the barbed wire line, he could see about. Another 20 yards on the other side. So they'd have limited amount of fire. What the Marines would do, they'd cut firing lanes. So they'd cut these firing lines at angles, knowing that's a path of least resistance. And the, you know, the Japanese infiltration techniques, you know, they go through the thick jungle. And you know, even if you're in a thick jungle, you're gonna hit a path of least resistance, you're gonna take it. So they were trying to lure them in those firing lanes and then you know, basically killing lanes with the machine guns. <clears throat> but a little side note there, those bunkers, um. Almost every bunker had a machine gun in it. You think, how many machine guns uh, does a battalion write? And how how do they get all these machine guns? But what the accounts stated that uh, they weren't that far from the Boneyard, which is the, you know, the, I guess, the uh, aircraft crash yard where they put all the wrecked aircraft from Fighter One in Henderson Field. So they were scavenging 50 cal and 30 cal machine guns off those planes and putting them in their bunkers. You know, you've got to, you got a young Marine private with a bowie catch and 1903 Springfield rifle, and he's sitting in his bunker. And then his his good buddy or his mate comes back with a 30 cal machine gun. He's going, "Oh, where'd you get that from?" He goes, "Oh, I'll just go back there to that wrecked planes and grab your machine gun." You, you know, of course he's gonna run back and get him a machine gun too. So you can see almost every bunker had a machine gun and had a heaps of ammunition. And a um, Vandegrift Division commander actually visited there when he said, "This is a machine gunner's paradise." So the Marines are waiting on him, but saying that. They didn't expect an attack from the south. So what Vanikriff did, he pulled Hanikin's battalion, which was manning basically Bloody Ridge, he pulled him off the ridge. He sent them on the ridge, all up to the Matanikau. Because remember before I said you had two Marine battalions up front on the Matanikau, and their flank was exposed on the ridge. So they knew the Japanese <coughs> um, could basically flank those two battalions. So they put Hanikin's battalion up on that ridge to protect them so they put three battalions up front but what they did though, it left that southern line with pullers battalion he had to take over two battalion front so he had to cover 2,500 yards you know and he had the 164th U.S. Army tied into his left um, but still uh, there were, he only had 500 guys to cover those so he had 500 guys spread out over 2,500 yards ready to accept roughly six to 7,000 Japanese concentrated attack, you know, in the second Sendai divisions, one of the best divisions that had. So, you know, the Marines are getting set up for a a major fall here. But the attack was delayed. The word got back to the 23rd. Okay, delayed it one day. And uh, we were almost in the jungle. He said, I came back in the 23rd to be the 24th. But once again, there's always someone that don't get the word. And in this case, it was the Japanese general and a a Matanikau. So he didn't get the word. So he attacked with his tanks. They started out 12 tanks, or sorry, nine tanks. They attacked with nine tanks across in a row, like ducks in a row, across the mouth of Matanikau. There's some famous photos. Um, You still see those nine tanks in a row on Guadalcanal. So they started out... And the Marines started um, hitting them pretty hard with 37-millimeter anti-tank fire and a 75-millimeter off the half-tracks. Half at the same time, the infantry supporting those tanks started out in their assembly areas, and the Marines started landing all their artillery, pre-registered artillery. So it was reported they uh, fired over 6,000 rounds in a small area. They basically decimated. Oh,
0: my God. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they basically decimated the Japanese in their tracks, a the whole company is being wiped out in this area before you even get to the the attack points or attack line. And um, one of the Marine veterans uh, of the Great War, World War One, said, "Look, place looked like you know, the Argonne or the Somme or something like. It looked like a World War One battlefield. You know, all the all the craters there and everything. So it basically, wiped. It just almost wiped a whole regiment. Not wiped them out, but just destroyed their their um their attack before it even started." And the tanks were all taken out, mainly by the 37 millimeters. One tank made it to the other bank and there was one Marine private that stuck a hand grenade in the track and blew, you know, stopped it, and then the 75 millimeter took it out. So basically that their attack was decimated. Um, Colonel Oka was gonna lead the flanking attack across the bridge and on the ridge. And so Oka's back in there again, but once again, his, he was delayed, so he didn't attack that night. So they couldn't even coordinate between those two forces that was operating together. And so they were. that attack stopped. The, the guys on the south haven't even attacked yet. So on the night of 24th, 25th, the southern group attacked. So this is going to be known as the Battle of Henderson Field. So they attacked. And luckily for the Marines, the Japanese uh, could only attack in company strength because to this day that jungle is super thick. I mean, I've walked that jungle I don't know how many times. I've probably been in that jungle more than anyone other than a local that I can think of. Um, the researching um, those bunkers and, and uh, that line. And there was two trails that Japanese used because they took the path of least resistance. One of the trails <clears throat> was in the middle of Sea Company, and that's where the um, famous Marine John Basalone comes in. So Basalone was a heavy machine gun sergeant, section leader. He had four heavy machine guns with a nineteen nineteen water cool or sorry, nineteen seventeen water cooled machine gun. He had two bunkers. And um, I won't get into too much detail of his actions, but if you go to my, um, a lot of these I've been talking about, if you go to my you know, YouTube site, on the Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield, you'll, you'll see these sites, how they look today. And I'm, I'm basically giving you a tour of, of these sites.
0: And please do um, check out his YouTube channel, everybody. It's amazing seeing your episodes. And it, it's one thing to talk about these battles and see the photos. Well, when when there are photos, mind you. But for you to actually go to the physical location and show what it looks like today, especially these remote locations that many people have never seen in their lives, it's very interesting.
1: Yeah, like I said at the very beginning, not some guys who go the week-long tours there um, never go off the beaten track, so to speak. Uh, they go to the itinerary. But yeah, Barcelona, the Medal of Honor site's there. So, but he was covering, he was covering that um, uh, important trail. He's also providing um, covering fire for a 37 millimeter anti tank gun. And they had a, a gate. No, oh, I can't pronounce it. Um, It's a French word, sharedif de phrase or something. It's like a, the, the, the old, you know, you got the log in the middle with the spikes that stick out, wow. you know, and they had that. It looked like something like a US Civil War photo. You know, in US Civil War, you say the share de phrase or something like that. The French word it has a, the spike sticking out on a log—it's oh, it's killing me. Someone who actually speaks French, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, that's probably—I I butchered that French. I have no idea, but I think that's that's pronounced. But anyway, um, they had that, and there was there was a gate <clears throat> they would allow. Anyway, they were covering that. and um, it was only like two weeks ago. I got to speak to a 97 year old Marine veteran, which I didn't think anyone was still alive, especially from that unit. Um, who's who switched on? just like, he remembers it like it was yesterday. And as more you speak to him, the more he starts to remember. And he was one of the gunners of that thirty-seven millimeter gun. And it's That's just quite amazing. Way. It is incredible in the stories he's telling. I mean, he's just—you get once I started speaking to him, I know exactly he was—he was there, and he was, you know, what he was describing. And he's giving me some good info, and he's—he's he's a good guy. So if you go to my uh, Guadalcanal Facebook site, you'll see him. He's George Mason, and um. Yeah, yeah, and I've got actually a map made by one of the veterans after the battle, and shows all the gun crews, and his name's on there, George Mason's gun crew, and tells some great stories, and he's he only 17 years old.
0: It's a really and rare experience th- to uh, to speak to anyone who survived these events. I, I had a I had a very unique. Well, I mean, this is going really off of, off on a tangent. I had yeah, a that's right. I had a unique experience that was a once in a lifetime, and uh, I found it was a little. Tr- <sighs> It it was a little awkward. Uh, I, my my family's from well the United Kingdom. Uh, they yes. came over after the war. Uh, everybody, almost everybody, eighty percent of my family died in the in the Blitz in London. Mm. And um, I ended up dating a, a German girl for a while, and I, I spent some time in Germany. And uh, well, her grandfather lives out kind of in the the boonies of an area called Dusseldorf. And we visited one time, and you know she knew I was. Uh, this is a long time ago. I was very young. She knew I was a World War II buff. And, you know, she asked her grandfather if he wanted to tell what was uh, his story of what he had seen. And uh, basically what he told me, he was about 15 or 16 years old. He was in Hitler's youth and he was on the Eastern Front. And the last, uh, the last hurrah, the Gutterdammerung when the uh, Russians were (laughs) coming into Berlin. And he, he had to run from the Eastern part of Germany all the way to the West to try and run and flee to the Americans to surrender and uh I've, I've never told the story but i guess maybe one day on my personal youtube channel if uh, i ask her if i can share it it's uh
1: horrifying <laughs> horrifying I'll to bet. say the least yeah and actually a, a good account to, to listen to a lot of people be interested in that hmm. um okay i'm trying to think oh we're, okay we're, we're at henderson field okay we're at bass okay um so the japanese um took the path least resistance. so they started hitting the marine lines and um And luckily for the Marines, the Japanese were attacking piecemeal. One Japanese regiment, 230th regiment, and these are the same guys involved in, um, because remember the 38th Division was involved in Hong Kong and in Timor and in Java. So these guys are veterans. Um, But one of the the regiment, 230th regiment, they were attached to the 2nd. Just to show you how disorientating that thick jungle is at night, instead of attacking, you know, um, south to north, they went parallel. They were parallel in the marine lines and they were they were totally flipped around and they were moving out way to the to the east. So they, that whole regiment wouldn't evolve into attack at all over two nights. You know, they just got so sidetracked. So the Japanese hit with this, it was 16th and 29th regiment. So they attacked and the Marines were stopping them they were holding them quite hard. And artillery the Marines had artillery support. So they were like really um stopping the Japanese in their attacks. Just like um, the veteran told me too, he said they were just, he he couldn't stop them. You had to kill them. He said, you have to kill these guys to stop them. They were just running massive into our guns. There was no stopping them. Um, Now you had the 3rd Battalion, the 164th. They were the only reserves that the division had. So they're back in the airfield. So Puller said, look, this is the main attack. And the division said, yeah, well, okay, this is the main attack now. We need some support. So he sent the Padre back. Of the battalion padre, and he guided these guys in, and he sent one man, one man from each platoon, to to bring these in. So because of the, they're basically um, coming in at night. They dropped one army guy in with a the marine. They said this is the only way we can do it. Just drop them in. So they, they you know, and the army had to at that stage M1 Garands. So the marine had the old bolt action rifles. Even though the marines had a lot of machine gun, but they said once you drop those army guys in there, they started fighting. They said you could really hear the. Um, intensity of the the gunfire go up i guess that was one you got more guys in there and two, you got the m1 grands.
0: yeah it's so a they classic really, really, sound
1: <laughs> oh yeah they really helped the marines out i mean you can go there to this day and find the um the stripper clips from the l 3 springfields and you can find the um the grand clips all together all mingled in it's quite amazing to, to see that you know the evidence of, of that that action so they, they stopped the japanese uh, that night and they reconsolidated the line. So the 1st Battalion, 7 Marines moved up on Bloody Ridge, and the, the 164th then moved, took over their positions. And then the next night, the Japanese attacked more in and force. And, and their main concentration then was a place called Coffin Corner. If you go to one of my videos, Coffin Corner, and you can see. And it was a jeep trail into a large open field. And the field was about 2,000 yards long, about three or 400 yards, or about 200 yards wide. And the, Marine, or the Marines and the Army had that with cross crisscross barbed wire and they had all the bunkers. And, and I've got some good photos that showed of what it looked like at the time. The Japanese were all concentrating on one Jeep trail and that Jeep trail went straight to the fighter one, which led on to Henderson field. So they were concentrating there. And then once again, the army and the Marines just, just basically stacked them up. And it was called Coffin Corner because one of the Marine veterans said, if I was a coffin maker, I'd, I'd be a millionaire. I'd be a millionaire here. So. Um, so the Japanese attacked that night. They had a limited penetration. I think the regimental commander, the 16th Regimental Colonel, he, he made it through with his f- color guard group, they called it, and they were pinned down in the area. And I've actually located the area. It took me a while, but I located the area. We actually found some um, evidence, too, on the ground. It, it's substantiated that in relation to some other evidence from the maps and unit reports. But, yeah, and the next day, the Marines ended up wiping those guys out, too. But um, there was one general and two colonels that died in that attack and i still say i haven't found any evidence to suggest otherwise but that attack i think at coffin corner was the last japanese offensive attack in the pacific war not counting china burma india because you got to remember japanese did bonsai attacks and other campaigns but that wasn't like a offensive attack so to speak the japanese on Guadalcanal was on the offensive at this stage they're you know their marines are on an army on the defensive japanese on the offensive so it was the last concentrated offensive attack large it was the largest um japanese attack on the island too so they call corner alone um they end up killing anywhere between uh, 1500 2000 japanese along that line they end up killing them um, so that was Stopped the Japanese in its tracks, and those, those Japanese then had to retreat back down the Murryama Road. And, you know, and they were out of food by the time they even reached the the front line, so they had to retreat back down it. Um, so that ended the the last Japanese major assault of the campaign um, uh, on at the Battle of Henderson Field. Um, that leads us up. That leads us up to to November. So. This is all done and dusted on a twenty. 20- and once again, the Battle of Santa Cruz Island, which is a big naval battle, so the, the Japanese did lure the Americans out, so to speak, and they fought a major um, carrier battle. Yeah, I guess but, for know. the
0: audience, just to explain, this is simultaneously happen- happening. It's a little hard to describe, but there's this entire naval engagement that's an extraordinary naval battle that's occurring with uh, the carriers, Enterprise Hornet versus the Shokaku, Zukaku, and uh, the Light aircraft carrier uh not as popular i think it was the zoio <laughs>
1: yeah a yeah, major battle. and at the same time on the sunday on the 25th the marines called it dugout sunday because the japanese is a major major aerial assault you know he had the, the land-based bombers and he had the, the carrier-based planes and they were smashing henderson field i forgot like almost 180 to 100 something like that you know, they were just smashing them and the Marines called it Dugout Sunday because most of them stayed in the dugout that day, so that was you know not to come out. You it's get really
0: yeah. At this point, where you're really starting to talk about the unsung heroes, the guys
1: repairing that airfield. <laughs> My God, CBs. Yeah, CBs. Can't the CB, CBs. You know, they were the unsung hero of the whole Pacific War. CBs. Yep. It's amazing what they did. Um, well, like I said, we could go down many rabbit holes here, but I'll try to stay on track. So, so that ended then ended last uh, end of October, 27, 28. So the Marines knew that they'd won a good victory and, and the Japanese were on the heels. So the best time to make a counterattack is now, you know? So Vandegrift said, look, once and for all, I'm going to wipe these guys off the Metanical, because they're, you know, they've just been beaten heavily. So, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to push them back. So on the 1st of November, he took the 5th Marines and, um, some of the 2nd Marine Regiment had come over from Tulagi this time, so we were gonna use them. So the 5th Marines were gonna push, push past um, the Matanikau to, to Point Cruz. And then once they reached the Point Cruz area, the 2nd Marine Regiment was gonna push past them all the way to Kukumbona, and destroy the 17th Army Headquarters and push the Japanese out once and for all. So the attack started quite well. On the 1st of November, the Marine engineers put down three footbridges so they didn't have to use the old log bridge, or coconut log bridge anymore it's probably probably fill in by this time because you know you'd have thousands of guys over it. but they put three uh, engineer bridges down and they crossed the attack was going quite well but then the uh, first battalion fifth Marines hit the area on the base of Point Cruz and um yeah they got hit pretty hard and I researched the area quite well because there's still about 23 24 marines unaccounted for from that battalion it was buried on the battlefield and you know, when I, when I worked there, my office was basically in the area where all this happened, so I used to think about those guys every day. Um, it's, and, and to this day, there's still, you know, a lot of remains being found. Because after the war, or after the fighting was over, Guadalcanal became a major logistical and training base. So the battlefield was basically, you know, bulldozed very really quickly and concrete slabbed right over the bay- mega base. So a lot of these, um, um, I guess... Bodies were still left there. Remains, most of them Japanese. But there's been, you know, after the war, they sent teams to try to find them, but they're still unaccounted for. Quite a number of. Them. But um, anyway, the Marines got hit pretty hard, and they they got stopped, and then they sent more reinforcements up, and they basically um trapped the Japanese in a pocket and ended up I think mean, killing about three hundred fifty to four hundred Japanese in a pocket. And the second Marines regiment pushed past them and um, all the way, almost to Kukumbona, place called White River, and the attack was going quite well but the, once again the marines received information that the japanese were making a major landing at Coley point now Coley point is to the east of henderson now you got to remember metanicals to the west which if i had a map i'd show you but they, so they okay we're getting hit hit potentially on our flank you know we we need to stop this attack and bring the guys back <clears throat> and if you remember that 230th Regiment, I I was saying it was involved in Battle Henderson Field. It went went parallel and didn't get into the attack. What they did, they just kept going to the east, and they ended up at Coley Point. So there was at least about 3,000 of those guys there, 4,000. And then they thought they were landing reinforcements, but the Japanese did land reinforcements, landed about 300 or 400 Japanese. So they formed up with this regiment. So you still had a major force to their east. So what they did, they stopped their attack, pulled the guys back, and the poor 7th Marines, you know, who were given a bit of a break, they didn't get much of a break. Again, they sent them out to deal with them. So they, had, they took the 7th Marines and some of the 164th, and they um, went after the Japanese um, under General Rupertus. They brought him. He was the uh, assistant division commander. So he was in that operation. And anyway, um, they tried to trap the Japanese, but, you know, especially some of the, the fresh ar- Army units didn't close the gap quick enough. And most of the Japanese escaped out of the swamp at Gavava Creek. They end up pinning about 450 Japanese or 500 and then end up killing them. And um, this is the only place where the the Marine I mentioned, Chesty Puller, was wounded. In 38 years of combat, it's the only place he ever wounded. So I I did a video not too long ago on that, on the wounding of Puller. And it it covers that area. Not too many people I know even go to that area, not even aware of it. Some of the guys who've been, you know, tour guides have been leading groups at Guadalcanal for years, have never been there. So um, there's, a, there's a, a local chief called um, – what is his name? Chief, not Chief Willie. Chief Joseph. Anyway, his um, name escapes me. I think it's Joseph. Anyway, he's, uh, he, he actually lives in that area where the Amtrak's are. If you go to visit, there's an Amtrak part from the 3rd Marine Division. There, there was part of their training camp after the after the campaign, you know, because, once again, they, they trained there, the 3rd Marine Division. In fact, the U.S., the 6th Marine Division was actually born on Guadalcanal in 1944, but anyway, there's Amtrak parts there. They left all their amphibious tractors there, and it's a good place a lot of people go visit. We speak to Chief Joseph. A lot of these guys, if you ever go visit the Amtrak parts, you know, he's got a big pit there. It's called the Japanese are buried in it, and then to this day, and it's right, his hut's right there in front of it. This day he refuses the Japanese government from digging them up and um, cremating the bones because his grandfather was um, Jacob Vusa, who was the most famous Guadalcanal, most uh, very famous um, scout for the Americans. Um, you know, um, if you ever read about Guadalcanal campaign, you know about VUZA, But VUZA was his grandfather, and VUZA basically told him, he says, "Leave those Japanese there." He says, "Never, never. You know, they're not worth it." And he says, "Any Americans? Yeah." dig them up and give them back. The Japanese can stay there. But, you know, once again, that's, that was in the times. And if you ever ever read what the Japanese soldiers did to to Jacob, Luz, you'd probably understand his, his way of thinking, but he's, you know, going to his grandfather's wishes. But once again, they, he kind of looked after them. They're all in the same area. So no one disturbed them. So I guess you could look at it that way, but, um, so Balakoli point, they escaped out. And, it, and when they escaped the, you know, um, a few thousand, a couple of thousand, I think, escaped. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. All, all this has come off the top of my head. <clears throat> um, the 2nd Marine Raiders under Carlson had landed at Aeola, which is down further in the East Coast. And they came up at the time, and this is the famous, especially in Special Operations history, <clears throat> this is long as, known as the uh, long patrol, the 30-day long patrol by the 2nd Raiders, so what they were tasked to do Cause the Japanese were moving back around Mount Austin to join their, their, their group around Matanical. So Edson was given a task to, to follow these guys and harass them. You know, good guerrilla techniques that these guys are trained for the, to do. So they did for 30 days They harassed this group and <clears throat> ended up killing quite a number of them. Um, but saying that a lot of, no, a lot of them were like dying by the roadside or in hospitals and things like that from disease and, you know, starvation. But ended up, yeah, you know, like I'd about, say killing what five or six hundred I think the Raiders did they, they basically decimated them. what was left of them losing about 16 Raiders but that was known as the long patrol very famous patrol and then on special operations history with the Raiders so yeah.
0: I think like 800 survivors of the Japanese ended up getting out Rest were, they had starved and gone through the ringer with disease and everything it was a rough yeah. time
1: yeah, I mean, you read what the Japanese did. Yeah, well, you know, Marines. Marines at the first of the campaign said, "Look, you know." I think one of them said, "Look, we're not eating much, but we're not starving. The Japanese are starving. They're starving. We're not starving. We're not eating much, you know. But they're definitely they really are starving because you know they were." Um. I think the Japanese. It was well, the counts differ, but I think we never get an accurate count. But over twenty thousand Japanese died on land there. 9,000 die from combat, roughly. And so the rest of them die from starvation and disease, just to put it in perspective.
0: Yeah, I, I think I, if I remember correctly, because I was writing a little piece on this, there was a veteran of Guadalcanal from Japan. I think, I think his name was Sadio Suzuki. And he was the guy who kind of came up with the name Death Island by Starvation.
1: Yeah, Yeah, Starvation Island they call it, yeah, it starvation island death island island in the the locals at the time called it the big death that's what they known as the, the the battles between the the americans and the japanese they call it the big death that's the time they refer to as war too, the big death yeah, crazy um all right so it takes us up to mid-november now some coli points over with so vandegrift says look i'm going to give it one last shot you know we'll continue our offensive in november so they recommenced their mid-November, their offensive. And um, they started fighting, fighting, fighting. They got in – you can remember, by this time, the 1st Marine Division was spent, you know, from their own malaria and, and diseases and just being there for three to almost four months, you know. They, they didn't have much um, offensive spirit left, so to speak. <laughs> Excuse me. So – the Army, the Army started bringing more units in to, to, to reinforce Marines, so they brought another um, regiment in, uh, the Americal Division, um, to, to assist. So they used some of those guys. And then they got up to Point Cruise Line, and they um, suffered a bit of a setback. And the Japanese had dug in, and the U.S. dug in. <clears throat> so from late November all the way to, I'd say January, that Point Cruise Line became the front line. And a lot of guys, or a lot of people who read about the Guadalcanal campaign don't even realize this. You know, the most intensive fighting in the Guadalcanal campaign happened around the account and the Point Cruz area. You know, people tend to think Bloody Ridge and Alligator Creek. And, but no, the most intensive fighting was around that area. Yeah, from, and Point Cruz.
0: Honestly, from a lot of the limited readings, it's, uh, it's almost as if after Bloody Ridge, they summarize most of the other actions <laughs> that happen after.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of action happening. Yeah. Um, so we almost almost there to the Army's major involvement. Um, so they, they were stuck there late November, starting to be early December. So the Marines started um, moving out, and the Army mainly started coming in. And so around um, early December, the first of the Marines started moving out of the 1st Marine Division. By the end of December, all the 1st Marine Division had uh, left for, um, for R&R, so to speak in Australia, you know, and there's those poor guys and 80% of the division had the malaria and we were so decimated. So it took them almost a whole year to get get back so they could carry another operation. So they left a well-deserved rest. And the elements, uh, more elements of the 2nd Marine Division, because many didn't even know the 2nd Marine Division was actually on Guadalcanal, but they were in, by January, they were on Guadalcanal in in, in entirety. Because before you had a 2nd Marine Regiment was there, they didn't get to leave in December with the rest of them. So they had to stay the whole whole course. But then 6th Marine Regiment and the 8th Marine Regiment um, had came in. And so they started coming in too. And, and then our U.S. Army, they started getting the rest of the Mar-Cow Division. Um, and they started bringing the 25th Infantry Division. These guys that were stationed at uh, Hawaii around Schofield Barracks on Pearl Harbor. So, you know, they were the regular, so to speak, the regular units, even though they did have a, a National Guard. Regiment, but they were the regulars with the 27th and the, um, it 35th Regiment. Um, so they were landed and, and Vandegrift turned over to command to a guy called um, Patch, Alexander Patch, Major General. So he's U.S. Army. So he was the division commander, but then he was elevated to, they formed the Corps then. It's the 14th Corps. So they formed the 14th Corps. with had the um, the Americal Division, the um, 25th Division and the um, 2nd Marine Division. So, what Patch decided to do, he says, Look, we're going to go on the offensive. He was giving orders to, to destroy these Japanese once and for all. So, the Japanese, oh, I'll backtrack a bit. In mid November, they were going to do another, they were going to re- replicate the attack they did in October. They had the rest of the 38th Division, they were going to land them. They're going to do the same thing. They're going to take the battleships, they're going to like blast Henderson Field, they're going to unload all the heavy artillery, and then they were going to do another attack.
0: Yeah, so, this time they're bringing the Hayaway and the Kirishima. It's, uh- this is the naval yes, battle of
1: Guadalcanal. Exactly. So the, the the middle the mid naval battles of Guadalcanal there at fault you know I think what thirteenth to the seventeenth something like that, you know that's when you had a battleship on battleship action and it's just amazing the the, the naval battles around Guadalcanal the most intense probably anywhere in a war of surface fleet action, you know to that extent especially for the U.S. Navy, um, but yeah that's that's another another sidetrack and that was a major a massive battle, you know that you know. Especially that naval battle. And, and on that, I've got, I've seen which video it is. It's called the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal and the American Monument. So you stand there and I'm, I'm showing them a video between one point and another point. You know, you have 30 ships meeting at night, at, at, all in a line. And it was, you know, that was the one where it was equated to like a, a ballroom brawl where the lights turned out. Oh my God! Yeah, searchlights, two hundred <laughs> yard machine guns. Yeah, machine guns. Searchlights yeah. come on.
0: People are shooting. Even the Americans are friendly. Fires going on. It was, yeah, part oh, yeah. Of play. you know,
1: you've you got destroyers on these battleships. You know, they can't depress their guns enough. It's just really amazing if you read it. But anyway, um, anyway, they stopped them, and so the Japanese basically went on the defensive then. But they went on the defensive, ready to go back on the offensive again. They, they, they had that whole offensive you know, frame of mind. <clears throat> so what they had done. At Mount Austin, you know, it was the, the bloody or the um, grassy knoll. Uh, it overlooks to this day. You know, it looks the same as it did. It overlooks Henderson Field, and there's always Marines always knew they'd be on observation, but they didn't have enough guys really to take it out. It's kind of live and let live. But but Alexander Patch said, "Look, we want to take." The, we knew there was some Japanese. He thought there's maybe like a company of Japanese demoralized up there, and he said, "I'll send a battalion." <clears throat> of my fresh units to to take them out and at the same time there were some japanese infiltrating off mount austin and and going in henderson field and doing nighttime raids so he said we'll end this he says i want to i want to push down the the west coast but i always have these guys on my flank so i want to take out my flank to allow me to push down the west coast so what he did he sent the 132nd uh, battalion 132nd uh, regiment which is a national guard unit he sent them up um just to take care of them, just to say, look, you know, go up and, t- and eliminate that threat. So they advanced up, and they got hit pretty hard with machine gun fire, and they go, oh, these guys are not demoralized. And then they lost a battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Wright, which to this day, there's a road up there called the Wright Road. And at that stage, it was just a jeep trail, and it ended, and it became a, just a, a trail. What the Japanese had done, it had almost a regiment dug in, or two battalions dug in. And they had a, a horseshoe shaped line with about 45 coconut um, pillboxes. It was a horseshoe shape, and to the west was the Matanakau River, it was a straight cliff. So the Americans really couldn't penetrate that line. So the Americans sent an, they, another battalion up, and they kept trying to flank it, and they kept getting hit. Because if you go there, the Japanese, it's a very thick jungle, and they had well camouflaged bunkers. And the reports that the, um, the soldiers were only getting you know, 10, five, 10 feet from these bunkers, not even seeing them. They're opening up, up on them. It's very scary. So Anyway, they, they couldn't flank them. So they dug in too. So most of December they were dug in, they were just facing each other taking casualties and um, the rest of the 25th division landed. So the U S army said, okay, the 10th, the 10th of January will be our main offensive. So on the 10th of January, the are second Marine division was going to attack down the coast. Um, The 25th division took over. The 25th division um, was gonna take um, Mount Austin and it was called the Gifu, by the way. I forgot to mention that. Uh, The Japanese named it the Gifu. That was uh, named after a a local area where most of these soldiers came from, the Gifu. And they were gonna isolate the Gifu and they had to isolate the Gifu. There was a number of ridges um, to the uh, west of the Gifu and uh, across from the Tanakao. And if you ever see the movies, There was an old one and a new one called The Thin Red Line and read the book, The Thin Red Line. You know, even though it's a fictional account, it's based uh, on this account of these attacks by the 25th on these ridges to isolate. Um, So I've got a good video and and that area is called The Thin Red Line. It's the galloping horse. So if if you look at a topographical map, you turn it upside down. It looks like a horse galloping to this day, you know, from the coral ridges open ridges in the jungles, and um nearby is a seahorse looks like a seahorse so they were getting a task isolating and destroying the japanese who were dug in those hills and even the movie the thin red line the modern one would you know with, with tom cruise and, and uh, nick nolte and, and cusack and the rest of them um the terrain looks quite very similar how it looks in reality um you see my video it's probably it is the most perfectly observed battlefield on Guadalcanal. Cause it's just hard to get to, isolated. Um, they did film in that movie. They did film parts of the Guadalcanal. Most of it was filmed in northern, northern um, Queensland in Australia. But there's a part of the movie in the very beginning. I think they're walking up a slope. You can see Mount or Savo Island in the background. So that was that was filmed in the Guadalcanal. And some of the um, singing in the movie. It's just a long movie, so I'm, like I, said, I won't get into what I actually think in the movie. But the combat scenes are pretty good, and it, especially when it depicts John Cusack um, taking those bunkers. That's loosely um, based on a fellow named Captain um, Charles Davis who actually earned a Medal of Honor up up top there. So, and uh, my video talked about that and it's quite amazing. There's one, I think I was telling this story before, there's one point, part there that I think is super amazing. When I was researching it and I was up on the battlefield and I found the the two big bunker holes that the Japanese pillboxes that they took out was on the reverse slope. And I knew that, that um, Davis and um, four other guys had crawled up within, within 10 yards and they were supposed to distract the Japanese and then a battalion commander with a, the company was gonna come over to Carl coral edge and attack. And when, when he distracted, he was gonna blow a whistle. So what happened was before they did that, they got within 10 yards and you know I'm crawling, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm crawling, I'm going, oh, this is where he would have been. Okay, I can see where the bunkers are. And then I knew that the Japanese threw some grenades at them. And it didn't explode but so davis and his other army guys the soldiers threw their grenades and it exploded exploded and they jumped up davis led the charge with his grand, and he, i think it went <clears throat> had a stoppage on his grand and he transitioned to his pistol i think or maybe vice versa but anyway i'm 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 looking at okay they were here they did this they did this and i'm looking down <clears throat> on the Carl, and there's pull pins from hand grenades all scattered around me and i thought well, this is, this can't be, but then I started thinking, hold on a minute. This battle was never fought over. anywhere. this is the only time this place was ever fought on what no one trained on this area. It has to be these guys pull pins and their grenades. just amazing that, you know, potentially it was the, from a medal of honor action, just, just sitting on top of the ground. It's crazy because it doesn't go down the ground. It's all Carl. Um, so yeah, so they end up taking, taking that. And they took the seahorse, and so they isolated the Gifu. And they knew by isolating the Gifu, the Japanese couldn't get for re- supplies from that 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 flank. <clears throat> so I think the next day, the day after, the rest of the 35th, um, after a, a major bombardment, attacked the um, the Japanese bunkers on the Gifu. And they had three tanks, marine tanks that they'd borrowed, and they had uh, or Marines probably left, had army drivers, and they only got one tank in position. But that one tank was enough to take out the, the bunkers. Because you gotta remember, this is before the days of um, flamethrowers and it, those, those Army National Guard guys only had hand grenades and rifles and bayonets to take out these bunkers. So you know, it was pretty pretty hard um, work, but the, the, uh, the tank kind of made the difference. So the Japanese, after the back was broken there, so to speak, they did a small bonsai charge and it was destroyed. So that basically, <clears throat> that, that threat was eliminated so and the rest of January, um, the Army and the Marines, 2nd Marine Division, um, started pushing down the coast. And they were fighting in um, isolated Japanese, but the Japanese is basically their you know, they're, they're offensive spirit or defense. They were, they were basically destroyed and they didn't have much fight left in them. Um, around the last of December, I think the last day in December, the Japanese high command basically made the decision that we will evacuate Guadalcanal. Um, so, but the Japanese thought, how can we do this? And they had to have a big um, intelligence, I guess, fate for, for the Americans to try to fool the Americans by using intelligence. So what the Japanese did, they, um, they made it um, look like for the Americans to assume that the Japanese were gonna do another large offensive on Guadalcanal. Americans thought, okay, the Japanese were going to do another large offensive. They're not giving it up. So the Japanese ended up landing um, a new, a fresh battalion. They did, of troops, but they were going to be the rear guard just to provide cover for the rest of the guys to move out. So they, the, the Army and the Marines fought a series of um, small engagements, mainly on the creeks and rivers, leading to the very end of um, the north west part of um, guarda canal called cape esperance around that area and the japanese you know basically leave guys you know to die or the rear guard at each each creek or each river you know to die in places to hold them back and um there's an operation key i think it's called Key, and over a series of nights the japanese evacuated on uh, i think nine to eleven thousand probably never find the exact numbers um yeah it's, over, uh, it's
0: almost eleven thousand it's kind of like they're dunkirk basically
1: yeah and it was like um you in that it's it's like the the gallipoli campaign in world one you know with yeah Australia exactly and, yeah. and the bridge you know the, the the most successful part of the campaign is evacuations you could probably say <laughs> the same here with the japanese and it's probably the only only real island they evacuated in the whole pacific you know because yeah really again, after, honestly after, yes. mm-hmm. well after guadalcanal you know they didn't have the capacity to do it i think they, they didn't control the sea lines i, mean, I don't you know, think they
0: had the luxury
1: yeah yeah you know they would have been sunk <clears throat> and um and mention that, you know, Guadalcanal is probably um, the only time in the Pacific war where both both forces were on par, so to speak. They're both equal, roughly, roughly equal. I mean, in the very, very beginning of the war, Japanese had the kind of upper hand and obviously toward the end of the war, you know, the allies basically, you know, they could dominate anywhere they wanted with the mass material and, and, and technology and firepower. But here they were, the forces were evenly matched. And in saying that, once the once the Allies defeated the Japanese in Guadalcanal, it really really gave them a major boost. You know, they it had small wins elsewhere in the Pacific, but is only at Guadalcanal and and nearby Ghana and, and Kokoda that it really said, look, we we um, we fought the best the Japanese have, and especially at Guadalcanal, we fought the best that Japanese had on air, sea, and land. <clears throat> I think for, um, for,
0: a, for a lot of people who are less uh, well less knowledgeable about the Pacific War, they always tend to look at, you know, and I think it's just because of the, honestly, because of the title, the Battle of Midway is almost always portrayed as this kind of turning point. But a lot of people would argue it's it's honestly, it's Guadalcanal because it's when the Japanese actually had to go on the defensive foot afterwards.
1: Yeah, well, I, I agree. I'm one of those who would say, yes, you, you're correct. Because I'm, um... You know, what's, what's a turning point? I mean, uh, I think a turning point is when the strategic initiative is a shift in the strategic initiative of a, of, a, of, a, of a war. And after Midway, you didn't see a, a, a shift in strategic initiative because the Japanese were still on the offensive. Yeah, exactly. Especially in the South nose. Pacific. It's
0: a bloody nose, but uh, the Japanese Navy was still the strongest at that point. They're still numerous, and they still oh, yeah. controlled the territories. So I mean, uh, honestly, when it came to the naval aspect of Guadalcanal, it was it was in their pockets. They had the poker chips, but they didn't have the intelligence. Uh, Station Hipmo and uh, the crypto analysts—they were learning from them and breaking the codes. And that numbers didn't win out against the intelligence. The Japanese—they had the better poker hands, but the Americans knew where they were going to be.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, you know, Midway gave the the Allies the um, you know gave them the. Momentum, I guess you could say, you go before. They were interest, still, yeah. yeah, just like we spoke about in the last episode, they were going to, they were, you know, Special Admiral King, the the head of the head of the um, chief naval operations. He'd already had it in his mind that, you know, even though it was a Europe first, he was still pushing for take offensive in the at some yeah. point in the Pacific and he wanted to, to log in the surrounding islands. You know, and that was even before Midway. Then, once Midway happened, he said, "Okay, now, now we're going to, you know, accelerate this plan." And they it's actually accelerating yeah. their plan.
0: It's actually kind of funny because he was going to be going to FDR with a proposal to get more resources for the Pacific, and it was the Battle of Midway that actually shifted FDR to say yes.
1: Yeah. So yeah, it, it actually, you know, it it brought everything forward a bit. Yeah. So, I I would say Guadalcanal in conjunction with um. The Papua New Guinea campaign it was happening at the same time as Guadalcanal because Papua New Guinea with the, the Australians and Americans. You know, some people don't even know the Americans are there, but the Thirty Second yeah. Division was there, and um, you know, when they won at Buna-Gona, which is the and the, the northern part there, um, so their campaign ended in January '43, and the Guadalcanal was February '43. So I call it the the one-two punch between those two. You know, that shifted the strategic focus, strategic initiative. Because, you know, before Guadalcanal, the Japanese had the initiative. After Guadalcanal, it was clear they didn't have the initiative. It was actually particularly... Thai command says that. Yep, go ahead. It
0: was, it was particularly important for the Japanese because the commanders who were in New Guinea, they were under the influence. The entire time they had to do any of the strategic planning, it was under the presumption that at any single moment, Guadalcanal could fall and all the units in Guadalcanal could come over to New Guinea. So it completely affected everything they did. And when it fell, yeah, of course, it really crippled New Guinea. For it was like the nail in the coffin
1: for both the one, two. Punches. Well, I mean, what if you know, you know, Port Moresby was their main objective, and yeah. you know, almost 40,000, 30 000 to forty thousand Japanese were, were, were put on land on Guadalcanal. You know, it's big. What if? What if you know they would have went to you know. Port Moresby in New Guinea instead, which a lot of them, like the 35th Brigade was, was supposed to go to New Guinea. The second was supposed to know, go to New Guinea, as far as I know. So, you know, you put yeah. all those, you know, how will that have been turned out? You know, how would Port? Australia it... react?
0: Prime Minister yeah. and Churchill weren't, uh, they weren't seeing a eye on a lot of things too. You know, there's, there's I mean, I know that uh, there's a lot of arguments to be made that Australia was never even considering suing for peace or anything, but, you know,
1: yeah, you, you I, never know. There's a good chance Port uh, Moresby probably would have fell. You know, because all the, the reinforcements and supplies that Guadalcanal took, you know, took it away from that campaign and fo- refocused their shift because Japanese couldn't maintain uh, two, you know, strategic important campaigns at the same time. So that's when they put one on hold in September after Bloody Ridge, which was Papua New Guinea, Kokoda. And Kokoda, you know, I'm obviously not the expert on Kokoda, but, you know, I know enough to, that uh, they started bringing the regular forces over. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Cause the militia guys did a great job holding them off, but then the regular forces landed and they brought them over the seventh uh, infantry division. And they started fighting back and it allowed them a chance to, to get a bit of a fight back, you know, and give them a bit of a breather to consolidate the forces and push the Japanese back over. So yeah, it was, yeah, to me, that's the, those two campaigns are the turning point and, and, you know, but there's a whole number of turning points you could say, it's probably not well, just course, one, yeah. one, but, but I think that was when the real, and the Japanese really, um, knew that okay and i think one japanese general basically said you know after Guadalcanal, I knew that it was over with
0: yes you know yes it's famous and the
1: solomon islands decimated that uh, you know people talk about midway you know destroyed the japanese air you know I didn't destroy japanese air crews not that many not that many went down i think we were discussing the other day about santa cruz and then in october i think more japanese lost more air crews than midway i don't know i have to double check that but it was up till you know, it was, it was a definitely a large the,
0: number. It was almost five. 500. Yeah, it was definitely
1: the Solomon Islands campaign that, that destroyed their air power. I mean, and
0: they can't replace them. Uh, the training for the, the Americans could train pilots and put them out and they had veteran pilots coming back and training other Americans. But for the Japanese, they, that was a huge problem for them. They, they actually mistreated their veteran pilots. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. They just used yeah. them
1: till they just died. But yeah. this is, you know, and I think uh, there's almost 700 Japanese planes were lost in, in the Guadalcanal campaign.
0: Yeah, you know, all the, the veteran pilots who came back from Midway were, were scorned for it. And they were the guys who had, they were still the veterans of some of them of Pearl Harbor and stuff. And they, they had knowledge to bring down to the other pilots coming up and they were not allowed. They were actually sporadically kind of spread out across different regions and stuff. It's, a, it's really weird how the, the Japanese went about that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they can never rebuild what they had come into the war with.
1: Yeah, well, um, that's, that probably wraps up all I have to really say um, yeah. unless we've got any questions or something. Um, I've been talking for a bit. And once again, Guadalcanal, you can, you can go down many rabbit holes and, and you could do a whole series just on, on Guadalcanal itself. I mean, it's, you know, it's the very first time in, in world history, military history, that you had uh, such a large naval air and sea campaign going at the same time. You I know, guess to, I mean, you won't find many many parts of war too, like that, not in this intense, small area. You an know, interesting uh, way to finish crazy. this
0: off, I, I think I would like to ask you, since you've been on Guadalcanal for so long, what was your favorite battlefield to walk? What was the most interesting, or you know, where you felt something?
1: I'd say um, the Galloping Horse, you know, the one I mentioned is probably the best yeah. preserved. Um, and if you if you look at my video, you will see that it's it's just. It's, it's just like it was there. I mean, it's just, just amazing. And, and it's a great study on how water or lack of water could decimate a, a, a unit, you know, yeah. because those guys up there, um, they didn't get any water supply. They had one canteen of water. And it's just, you know, when you're up there yourself and you've got to get up to that area, once you even get to the battlefield, you're, you know, you feel like you're, you're half dead because you got to go straight up this mountain. And once you get up there and it's like, yeah, I've seen, and a number of, of you have to be, if you go to Guadalcanal, you gotta be very acclimatized. I don't know if you can actually do that. Most people, when they get to the top of the thing, they, they vomit. <laughs> Just a natural, <laughs> really? natural reaction. Or they get to the, the vomit, then they'll continue on. Okay, let's get some water in you, let's continue on. But I used, and those poor guys, that was, it was attacked. They're only on the island for maybe two weeks. And they had one bought, canteen of water, and I said, let's, to tack up these ridges and, you know, Japanese dropping mortars and machine guns and you're sprinting and running and, you know, and, and the end of the night that, you know, they're green troops too. So the water discipline would have been off. And yeah. when the nighttime come, they didn't get resupplied because guys couldn't get up to them. And the next morning they had to kick off their next attack. And they had so many heat casualties already. And, you know, once they received a bit of machine gun fire, they just stopped their, their battalion and stopped its attack attacking its track. And as they were done for, they had to bring another battalion up. And then when they brought the second up, they actually ran out of water too. It was a big thunderstorm that came through and it gave a little bit of um, water to quench their thirst enough to, to um, get them over the edge, sort of speak, and take the rest of it. But yeah, that's my favorite battlefield I and mean, you can really study. I like go out, I mean, I like Bloody Ridge too. I used to go to Bloody Ridge all the time. I used to, from work, I used to drive up, you know, I've, I calculate I've been to Bloody Ridge over 300 times. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, I, I can close my eyes and I can... You know, if I look at it, just a little bit of a picture of Bloody Ridge, of a, of a, of a photo, someone says, "Oh, where's this set?" You know, 1942-43. I could probably, I'm, I'm most can pick it out quite quickly because I know that terrain quite well. That's um, a great battlefield to study too, because I've, I've taken uh, when I was there, Marines, Australian, New Zealand, uh, Army, NCOs and officers for battlefield study uh, groups, and we can we really study the Battle of Bloody Ridge. It's a good one to study. Um, but yeah, but yeah, there's there's quite a number. But I used to go to Bloody Ridge, and it's a very peaceful place. The only place on Guadalcanal that I ever get that kind of heebie-jeebies, or you know, the hair stand out the back of your neck, was um, Coffin Corner. It's um, the mm-hmm. only place in the thick jungle. I'm walking, I'm thinking, this doesn't feel right. There's someone around here. It just you know, it just doesn't feel right. Bloody Ridge is very peaceful. Coffin Corner, I mean. But once again, you know, the the barrel pits for the Japanese. Each barrel pit you know, held five four or 500 Japanese and we've got three big barrel pits there. We you know, held 1,500 Japanese dead. And, yeah. you know, there's, they've, they've been excavated in the 80s, but, you know, the barrel pits are there and, and, and we still find equipment and bits and pieces there all the time. And, you know, and there's bones everywhere. So, yeah. Uh, oh, well, you and know. And unexploded an ordnance is a big, big problem right now in the Solomon Islands. It's everywhere.
0: So to finish it off, how about you just tell the audience again where they can find you, where can they watch these amazing videos if you walk in the battlefield giving these tours? Yes,
1: yeah, so it's a, a YouTube page, it's called Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield, and then I have a Facebook page called Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield. And my, my Guadalcanal um, YouTube one, it has a lot of videos for me actually on the battlefield, but then I've got four or five here recently because I've, I haven't been back to Guadalcanal, especially with COVID, I'm planning on hopefully going back of this year definitely next year and filming some more. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm just doing some small um, episodes. that has um, got then and now photos and off the beaten track, like the projected Puller wounded and a few things. And my, once again, my Facebook page updated you know, one or two days, every one or two days with, with fresh material that hopefully you've never seen before. So that's it.
0: So everyone, please show him some love. Check out his videos, <laughs> like, and subscribe. And, Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: All right, Craig, thanks for, for having me on, mate. It's, it's always, I'm oh, sorry, mate, that's my Australian strain me, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me, and I'm I'm eager to, to talk any, anything about Guadalcanal.
0: Absolutely. It's been the uh, Pacific War Podcast week by week, over and out. Really hope you enjoyed that, and please don't forget, I now have a Patreon account where there is exclusive content if you're not already listening to this there. So please check it out at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel.